everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. This is your DC Spotlight for the week of April 25th, 2023. Uh, solid week of DC books, I'd say. Debut of Green Arrow, the end of Lazarus Planet, the end of Blue Beetle Graduation Day, and the end of me sitting down for these uh, spotlights. I now have a standing desk, so hopefully that means I'll lose some weight. I don't know. We'll have to, we'll have to wait and see, but... Anyway, uh, enough of that talk. Uh, if I seem to be moving around a little bit more, you'll understand why. Uh, it's kind of probably be kind of hard to stand in the same place for two hours. Uh, but anyway, Rocky, what are your thoughts on this week's books? Well, I am. Uh, I think that uh, there is uh, overall, in terms of sheer numbers. I mean, I, I it, this this is it. If I was. In terms of the majority, I actually was disappointed in the majority of them, but I want to be positive and focus on the ones that I enjoyed the most. And just a quick heads up, I, I kind of, I enjoyed, uh, I enjoyed Green Arrow, Action Comics, Doom Patrol, and Blue Beetle, more so than anything. And I was surprised by Detective Comics because we seemed to get a quasi-new origin for Raza Gaul, which was a big surprise given the sort of confusing narrative of Ram V. So overall, it was an intriguing week, an interesting week. Uh, but I, I do have some disappointments. But again, as we, you and I always say, I mean, we can't, you know, we have different opinions. We're going to disagree probably a little bit on some this week. And, uh, you know, just because we review all comics doesn't mean we like all comics. So <laughs> all DC comics. So what, do you, what, what about you? How, how was it for you? Yeah, I mean, sort of similar. Um, I, I wouldn't say that I disliked Green Arrow, but I, I wasn't a big fan. I, I mean, and I'll talk about it when we get into detail. Uh, just, just I had some... I had some concerns, I guess we'll say. Uh, you know, I, I do think Joshua Williamson is a very good writer, um, but some of the choices he made just surprised me a little bit. So we'll talk about that. And I am a Green Arrow fan, so maybe that was part of why it didn't it didn't work for me. Um, yeah, I thought Blue Blue Beetle was good. I thought uh, Doom Patrol was solid. Collective Comics. I mean, I, I've sort of ranted about it recently, and you know what? I've come I've come around. <laughs> I've come around to thinking this is. Gonna sound really strange, right? Like if I read the story for the story itself, right? Like like set aside the fact that it's supposed to be a Batman story. It's Detective Comics. One could argue it's a flagship title. You can make an argument for Action Comics as well. But the company is named, and it's you know it's always funny, right? Like they call it DC Comics. The right. DC stands for Detective Comics, so it's actually <laughs> Detective Comics Comics, which doesn't make sense when you you know break it out like that. But regardless, you could make the argument this is the flagship title of this comic book publisher. And we all know there is no argument that Batman's the most popular character. He simply is the most popular character. He keeps the lights on. He pays the bills. Yeah. If you set aside the fact this is a Batman story and just read it for the story itself, it's, it's kind of interesting. It's, it's, it's ambitious, right? You can see what he's trying to do. The problem yeah. is when you make it a Batman story and you change around fundamental things that we've known for years, like this, week's issue with changing around Ra's al Ghul. And it's not, you know, cut and dry, black and white, but, you know, and you could say the same thing about the issues he did where it's back in the 1880s. He's changing the, you know, the past of Gotham City itself, or at least injecting new things that don't make sense on what we know so far. But you could make the same argument to a lesser extent with what uh, Scott Snyder did with Court of Owls. But regardless, you set aside the fact that it's a Batman story, it's not bad. But the problem is it is a Batman story, right? Like it's the same thing. Everybody knows how much I dislike the Scott, the, uh, sorry, Zack Snyder film, Man of Steel, Superman, my favorite character. I have so many problems with that movie and the things that were done with it. Um, 
and I'm not going to get into it here because I've talked about it so many times, but I will say this, like set aside that that's a Superman movie, insert random alien guy that is not a symbol of hope and wasn't raised by, you know, Midwest patriotic Americans that, you know, were very kind hearted and that sort of thing. And they're completely misportrayed written poorly in that movie, like set all that aside and just have it as like a modern day alien fish out of water story. And with the visuals that Snyder's known for and the action, it's actually a good movie, right? I'm not arguing that it's not a good movie. I'm arguing it's a, it's not a good Superman movie because it betrays the character and not just character of Superman, but a lot of the supporting characters as well, especially Jonathan Kent. So I feel the same thing, same way about detective comics. It's not a bad comic book run, but it, it's in my, I think it's a bad Batman run. I don't think it suits Batman the character as much as, you know, Ram V is ambitious and likes to do interesting things. I mean, do you feel like Batman is the star of that story? He feels almost tangential at times. Well, uh, right? <laughs> well, uh, well, he's this, well, he's, I understand where you're coming from, uh, but I mean, I guess it's the old adage, you know, so heroes are only as good as their villains. And I don't mind. Ram V is trying to, his best to build up the complexity of the villains and trying to build up the complexity of Ra's al Ghul and the analogy he's bringing. Uh, and we're, we're, we're kind of reviewing this latest issue of Detective Comics. He's clearly building a mythology of Ra's al Ghul and, and he's adding to the mythology of the Lazarus pits and the origins of Ra's al Ghul and, and how the organs are related. And it is more complex and it's, it's much more rich than we've given it credit for. I think it's lost a lot of its readership looking at the sales and a lot of people have lost patience with us. This. this is the 10th issue. Uh, there's nine, this is the ninth issue plus we have an annual. So 10 issues to get to this point. Who knew that this was going to be a Razal Gaul, a, a retelling of the Razal Gaul origin, which has been retold multiple times already. Now we're getting a new one in this dawn of the DCU era. And we got Vandal Savage thrown in for good measure. And so, uh, I agree with you on the one hand. Yes, it's, it's frustrating. It's not a Batman story. But as, as frustrated as I am on the journey getting here, I'd be lying if I said, this probably, it is kind of an interesting take on Ra's al Ghul and his origins. I, I, I have to say it's kind of interesting, but at the same time, the, the flowery language that I love so much in Swamp Thing doesn't quite resonate as much with me here in the voice of Talia al Ghul or all the other players, because all the Orgums talk in, the, talk in the same flowery language. Talia Gall, as the narrator in this issue, talks in the same flowery la language. And it it kind of loses something in that translations. But, uh, and, and, and of course, Batman is sort of a side character there. So I can see where you're coming from. At the same time, I can appreciate what Ram V was trying to do. Whether or not he did it is going to be up to the individual readers. But, I mean, anecdotally, what I'm hearing is that more people are turned off by this long narrative than not. Yeah, I'm, I'm hearing the same thing, and I, I'm, I'm going to put a pin in it. I'll give more thoughts when we get to it, but let's okay. let's go in the order that we normally go in the order that they're listed in our uh, press preview. So that being said, we'll get started with Donna DC Green Arrow number one. Uh, there is no credit page inside, and it seems like Rocky and I were just talking about this right before we started recording. It seems like there's a page missing in our press preview. The title page, you know, I expect a big giant, fantastic title page uh, with art by Sean Isaacs, and it's not there. Um, we know Joshua Williamson is the writer. We know Ramulo Fajardo Jr. is on colors. I apologize. I can't give credit to the letter 
because uh, I don't know who it is because, again, there is no credits page. But they do a good job. Uh, word balloons and interesting uh, captions based on who's talking. We do get Green Arrow. We do get Roy Harper. We do get Connor Hawk, Green Arrow, and we get Black Canary. And much to Rocky's delight, we get Leanne, Roy's uh, daughter, and there's actually a reunion. It's very heartfelt. I, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's, you know, uh, Wally and Barry and Flash Rebirth bringing tears to the uh, eyes, but it, it's a feel-good moment, and it's been a long time coming. And then as soon as we get it, no sooner do we get it, does Joshua Wimson rip the rug out from under us. Leanne fades away. She disappears. She goes to wherever it is that, that Ollie is, because that's how it starts off. Ollie's in this, I wouldn't even say like a different part of the multiverse. But it very well might be, but it looks like this futuristic um, landscape. We don't know exactly where he is. When Leanne shows up there, he's wearing a different costume. It looks completely different, but it looks totally badass. Uh, a little reminiscent of being on the island because he's got the full beard rather than just the goatee. Um, and we're not exactly sure what's going on. He takes Leanne over to this teleporter and she's thinking, oh, great, we can teleport back home wherever we're supposed to be. And then he blows it up with an arrow uh, and she yells at him and he says, you know, um, we can't go home. We can never go home and it's to be continued. So not exactly sure what the hell's going on, but I am intrigued because the other thing that I didn't mention is this futuristic place, wherever it is, different planet or the future alternate timeline or whatever manhunters like the uh, robotic manhunters are there. They seem to be the villains of the piece. Uh, so interesting, but don't know where it's going. I'm not the biggest Roy Harper guy. Um, and I, honestly, I'm not, don't really care that much. I'm not that invested in his relationship with his daughter or relationship he has with Cheshire, who's the mother of Leanne. Um, but I am happy for fans of Roy Harper and fans of that dynamic like Rocky who are getting a chance to finally see this payoff. Cause like I've said, uh, the hits have been planted for a long, long time that this was going to happen. So that's all well and good. The thing. And, and so for the most part, especially hearing myself, you know, talk about this, I did enjoy this issue, I guess what I didn't enjoy or what I felt was kind of superfluous, I guess you'd say. Um, I feel like I, I was expecting a little more. I wanted a little more. And we spent a lot of time, and again, it's gorgeous art from Sean Isaacs, so it's not completely wasted, but we get what I assume are three double-page splashes in a row, of which, again, we only have two of them here, because I think we're missing one, uh, that title page. The first one shows this alien landscape, and again, super cool looking and what have you, but you're giving up story real estate. To and then the following page is sort of this montage piece, and... Uh, Green Arrow, Oliver Queen is sort of narrating over the top of it and sort of explaining who he is uh, to the point, hey, I used to be this jerk. You know, I was born rich, a silver spoon up my butt, all that sort of thing. I got stranded on this island. I trained with people and he, sh he shows him and Merlin. They weren't all good people. I was part of the Justice League, like all this stuff, right? Um, who's picking up Green Arrow that doesn't know this stuff, right? So again, it, it's it's cool that Sean Isaacs gets to stretch his legs and do this great montage piece. Does this great alien landscape piece. It's beautiful. I can't say enough about how fantastic the art is in this book and the colors by uh, Fajardo Jr. are amazing as well. But we're, we're giving up a lot of story real estate here. This felt a little bit too short. It felt like I could see people picking this up and reading it and going, well, that wasn't worth my, you know, $4.99 or whatever and just jumping right off after the first issue. So you know, it, it might sound like, or three ninety nine. I guess at least it's only four bucks. 
Um, so I guess, I mean, maybe I'm being overly critical um, because again, emotional uh, reunion for Roy and his daughter, which I think is going to pay off for a lot of people and a little bit of an in- intriguing premise, but I don't know if it, that's enough to overcome how little story momentum we get, right? Like I'm going to, we were just talking about Batman being a side character in his own book. You could make the same same argument here. I mean, obviously this is going to focus on Green Arrow and wherever he is and whatever's going on. But I think Roy and Connor and Black Canary show up on more pages than Oliver Queen does here. Um, So again, interesting choice. I think maybe uh, I just wanted a little more story. Maybe in a way it's a backhanded compliment. So yeah, I had some issues with it, but overall, I am a Green Arrow fan. I, I think I've collected every Green Arrow series, so I'm, I'm definitely still on board, um, if for no other reason than the art. I mean, Sean Isaacs, I'm a huge fan of his. I loved uh, the art that he did on Thunderbolts. Jim Zub wrote that uh, over at Marvel, the latest version of Thunderbolts. So, yeah, I'm definitely in, but uh, I had, I, you know, I was a little disappointed, I have to admit. So, But, man, that new costume of Sean Isaacs. Is the one that uh, that designed it, you know, heaping even more praise on him because that costume looks amazing. So, anyway, give us uh, some of your thoughts. Well, I mean, the theme here with Green Arrow is is quite is quite simply a theme that will either make Green Arrow fans happy or unhappy, and that is the theme of family. We got a Batman family; it's huge. We got a Superman family under Philip Kennedy Johnson and, and Williamson; it's huge. It's grown. Uh, we've got a Blue Beetle family that's growing. We've got the Power Rangers in Blue Beetle. We've got a teen, the Teen Titans family. Uh, we got we got a rather abysmal attempt, but nonetheless an attempt at an expanded Wonder Woman family. And now we have a Green Arrow family. That's what this is. This is the Green Arrow family. This is more the Green Arrow family comic than Green Arrow. And I think if you're an Oliver, if you're a diehard Oliver Queen fan, and you're a, a fan of some of his classic runs, which are really Green Arrow centric, you're going to be disappointed with this. Uh, if, if you want this to be a, a Oliver Queen focused narrative, it's not. Now, I personally, I've never been a Green Arrow fan, quite frankly. And I've, I've loved some past Green Arrow runs, but he's never been, I've never been a fan of him. I've, Green Arrow's always been a character I've kind of loved to hate. And, and I can actually enjoy comic books with Oliver Queen in them because Oliver Queen, I love to hate the guy. Sort of like Darth Vader. I love a good Darth Vader story. <laughs> Oddly enough, I know Oliver Queen's a good guy, but I've never really kind of liked him, but I've still kind of enjoyed his stories. But one character I absolutely love you alluded to is Roy Harper. And uh, now uh, people listening or those watching on YouTube, you can you can Google this and correct me in the, in the comments, whatever. I'm not sure how long it's been since Leon died, but I'm a huge Roy Harper fan, more, far more so than Green Arrow. And when he lost his daughter, that was devastating to me. In, in the pages of uh, Infinite Frontier, uh, when, when Roy Harper was a Black Lantern, he had a vision that Leon was still alive. So he's known since then, since Infinite Frontier, that his daughter was still alive. And apparently he's been looking for her. And he's finally found her. We got a hint in the pages of Batman, and the scene is hinted at here and shown here. Cheshire uh, also seems to be aware that her daughter's alive, and this this uh, this moment where Leon, you know, have a finally reunites with her father, it's very heartfelt. I think it's very well done. I I I personally love it, and it was hard for me. I I didn't shed a tear, and I'm I, I can I'm a guy who can cry at comics. I didn't shed a tear, but it really warmed my heart. And uh, it, it was really, really nice to see. And uh, 
if I had won, and I'm, I'm nitpicking here, if I was Roy Harper, uh, I the one thing he said that I would disagree with, he goes, you know, if if you don't have to come with us if you don't want to. I just want you to know that I'm here for you. He says that to Leon. There's no way Roy Harper would give his daughter the choice. <laughs> no, no, no. I finally found you. You're coming with me, young young girl, young woman. Uh, so that's the only th- the comment he made that I, I would – there's no way that if he hasn't seen his daughter in that long, he wouldn't have said that. I can tell Joshua Williamson's not a father because Roy Harper would not say that. You're not going to let your daughter go who you've been looking for and you're going to let her just give her the choice of letting her walk away. No way Josh, will you do that. No way Josh, will you do that. But He has kids. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, didn't, I guess it tells you a lot about his relationship with them then. But uh, <laughs> I think they're really little. I could be wrong, but I, I, think, yeah. I don't think – I think he has one or two, but I – I don't I think well, this one is any older than – I think he just has one, and I think he's under the age of three. Yeah. So maybe, I, well, well, maybe. Maybe I'm nitpicking, but it was still a heartfelt moment. And Leon, of course, she wanted him back, and, and she ran back into his arms. But I, I keep thinking Leon is probably 12, 13. Maybe she's 14 or 15. There, there's a problem here in the DC universe, which uh, I'm going to keep going back to in multiple titles, where I don't know how old these kids are. Are they 12 years old or are they 17 years old? And they keep – they keep being drawn in different ages and looking differently, so I never know how old they are. But in any event, uh, I want to pick on you now, Jace, because your favorite character is mentioned here, and oh. it's the reason why it's the reason why Leon tells Roy that they can never be together because they won't let him be together, and it's Amanda Waller. Block that out, Waller. Bro. I tried to block that out. <laughs> So, so now Amanda Waller seems to be the bad, the, the villain in so many titles alluded to, hinted at, the, the shadow in the background. And here she's a, clearly one of the shadows in the background linked to one of the reasons why, for whatever reason, uh, Green Arrow and Leon can never be reunited with uh, Roy and, and, and Black Canary and what have you. So um, in any event. I enjoyed this. This was very genetic. It was, a, pardon me, generic. A little a little bit tropey in how it started off, but I think we kind of needed to start off this way. There's been a lot of history of Green Arrow. There's been, uh, since this was a clearly, this the, the focus here was clearly family-orientated. This was clearly to establish the idea that the Green Arrow has a large family. I mean, we, uh, we've we even got the Red Canary here that was introduced in Dark Crisis, you know, uh, even though she's kind of a joke of a character. I don't think she should actually be in this comic, but she is. She's sort of like the Black Canary light. Um, so there's there there are characters here that are redundant and I, I don't think should be in here. And I, I think this this I think this Green Arrow family is is more large than it needs to be. But I understand what Williamson is going for. Uh, I like how Williamson handled the large cast of characters in the, in Robin in his Robin series. Uh, but but it's gonna we'll have to wait and see how he handles this this family dynamic uh because right now all he's done is he's shown all the players on the board and he's only given a very generic hint as to what the overall plot might be well actually we don't have a lot of information at all other than Amanda Waller and Manhunters and Green Arrow and another part of the universe or whatever but in any event uh, it's not bad it's not bad uh not not great scene with Leon if you're a Roy Harper fan and uh, I, overall, I enjoyed it. I'm, I'm glad, you know, uh, was it super exciting? No. Was it a must read? Only if you're a Roy Harper fan. Uh, but if you're a Green Arrow fan, I'm not sure. It depends. It depends how much you're a Green Arrow fan versus a family fan. fan. 
Yeah, yeah that, that, that's my point. It's called Green Arrow, but but you're right about the family aspect. You're right about Roy Harper. Uh, it is interesting. I, I did notice that as well. Like, man, he, he hasn't seen this daughter. He's been – that was the reason you could, you know, read into it, that that was the whole reason how he was able to resurrect himself, that will to find his daughter. And he finally sees her, knows it's her, and he's going to let her walk away. Like, yeah. I did make nothing of that in, in my mind. I don't know that I would necessarily put it on, well, you know, no parent is going to do that, only because of the – all the things, all the trauma Roy Harper has been through, right? Like when you think about, like think about where he came from, golden age character, you know, golly gee whiz sort of character. <laughs> and the argument could be made much like Wally West. He's another one that he's really been put through the ringer, right? Like, oh my God, has have DC writers put this guy through a lot of trauma. So from that perspective, you could see where he may be willing to say, I'm going to let her come to me on my own terms. But at the same time, I see your other point. How I mean, this is the reason. I mean, again, you could read into it that way. This is the reason the guy even came back from the dead. He's not going to let his daughter walk away. So <laughs> glad it worked out the way he did, and Williamson didn't drag it out longer and make us wait a few issues for that uh, that reunion. Uh, and yeah, like I said, I think I blocked out the Amanda Waller thing. God, I hope she doesn't show up in the pages of this book as well. Uh, anyway, let's move on. Riddler, Year One, issue number four, written by Paul Dano. That's the actor that played Riddler in the most recent Batman movie. Art is by Steven Subic. This is a bit of a flashback uh, issue. Everything's sort of taking place, I guess, in present day, quote unquote. And this is a black label book. It's out of main continuity. It's in the continuity of whatever part of the DC universe that Matt Reeves' Batman movie lives in. I haven't seen it. Uh, I know Rocky has. Uh, I was just talking with my son, actually, about it this weekend. He's talking about how much he loved it. Um, doesn't think I would like it. It's not my particular cup of tea, and I, and I haven't seen it for that reason. Not a fan of this uh, version of the Riddler either. But the series has been interesting enough, and I give Paul Dano a lot of credit. He clearly has thought a lot about character is and uh, his origins and what makes him tick or what have you. And in this particular issue, we get his origin. We see sort of how he was led down the path, sort of ostracized and bullied and all that sort of stuff. So, again, interesting enough, I think if you're a fan of the movie, you're really going to get a lot out of this. It's adding context to the character. Um, for me, this was the least interesting of these um, issues so far in the story, only because at least when we're in the current day and this Riddler character was investigating this conspiracy that's going on that's you know leads him to actually become the Riddler, I was a little bit invested. It's slightly interesting. Going back and seeing his origin, like he's traumatized, he's bullied, he's teased in this orphanage. I mean, I had already been told that. I don't know that I necessarily needed to see it firsthand because I know the guy's had a rough ride. He's had a crappy life. I get it. That's how he became the Riddler. Um, so it seemed like sort of an interlude flashback origin, you know, origin of an origin story, right? Because in the main story in, in, quote unquote, contemporary time, we're seeing him evolve into the Riddler. Now we're seeing how he got to that point. So origin of who he is that then becomes a Riddler. So it's like subset of a subset. I don't feel that it was really necessary. So th this issue interested me the least. Like nothing that happened here was anything that was surprising or profound or what have you. It's just a bunch of childhood trauma and it's kind of depressing in a way. Uh, I will say that the uh, St uh, Steven Subic art, it's in that same sort of water watercolor style. Everything sort of has this greenish overtone, which works, right? Because that's the one of the Riddler's colors. He's known for dressing in green. So it works on that level. Um, so this is okay. I mean, technically, it's a very well-done comic. But as far as the subject matter, 
it's just, it didn't pull me in. It's not something that, that I'm not interested in. I'm, I'm only mildly interested in the story of this character sort of in the present, right? You pull me into the past to show me things that I kind of already knew instinctively just doesn't do it for me. So uh, anyway, what were your thoughts? I don't have much to add. I have not really been following this. Uh, the art's fantastic. I mean, it's just fantastic. I mean, the there's a really good uh, look. I wasn't a fan of the Batman fan. I gave a scathing review of the, the Batman movie. I it wasn't my cup of tea. But you know, credit full credit where it's due here. Paul, Paul Dano has stuck to the depressing, uh, suicidal nature, uh, dark of the uh, mood of the movie, and that's what this story is. His character of the Riddler, which I did not like, but again, in fairness, it's a dark, brooding, depressing character that. Is not like any iteration of the character anywhere that I ever read in the comics at all. Complete deviation from the source material. And this is just a very, 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 very dark and depressing version of the character. And we, this was superfluous. We don't need to know any of this. And in fact, I'll be, I'll be honest with you. I think this takes away from the mystery of the character in the movie. Uh, because it, the, 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 the mystery of the character of the Riddler in the movie, the Batman, to the extent that the character is interesting, allows the viewer, reader, watcher of the movie to fill in the blanks and imagine what, what, what drove this character to become who he was. This removes some of the mystery. And, um, it was just unnecessary for that, for that reason. However, having the blanks filled in, by Paul Dano is interesting. It is fascinating. And this is a really good combination of artist and writer. The, the, the art here does justice to the very dark, brooding and depressing tale that Paul Dano was telling. So uh, for fans of the Batman, I would think that you might want to give this, uh, give this series a, a, a purchase. Yeah. I think if you're a fan of that movie, you're probably all in on this. So, um, but again, I, I've never seen it, so I can't, I can't really say. Uh, all right, moving on. Lazarus Planet, Revenge of the Gods, number four, written by G. Willow Wilson, at least the main story. Pencils by Cian Torme, inks by <clears throat> Raul Fernandez and Wade Von Grobinger. Colors by Jody Goulaire. Letters by Pat Barroso. And then we do have the backup story, which gives us the sort of uh, new status quo, I guess you'd say, of Mary Marvel and, and Billy Batson, for that matter. We know that there's a uh, Shazam series coming from... Mark Wade uh, later this year. Uh, but anyway, the backup written by Becky Clunan and Michael W. Conrad, Aletha Martinez uh, handles the, uh, pencils. Actually, I take that back. There is, there's two backups. The first backup is uh, the fight on Themyscira against Hades. Becky Clunan and Michael W. Conrad writers on that. Aletha Martinez on pencils, Mark Morales, John Libesay do the inks and Alexis Gormas on colors. And then there is the, the Shazam backup that gives us the final or new, if you will, uh, status quo for uh, Billy Batson and Mary Marvel, written by Josie Campbell. She's the same writer that did the recent new champion of Shazam, starring Mary Marvel. And Yarsky, who did the art in that series, does the art here. Jordy Blair on colors and Clayton Cowell on letters. So uh, go ahead, Rocky. Give us uh, your thoughts on the main story. Sorry. <laughs> oh, man. Um, in a satisfactory way. Well, well, this is going to be a quasi rant. Uh, and again, I always try to catch myself on this title, but, um, the misandry is just unbelievable. Uh, I'm just, you know, I'm not, <laughs> I just, Jay Willow Wilson, uh, does, uh, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm just stunned by this. Uh, where does one begin? Well, let's, let's start with the fact that Wonder Woman now has had the acquired the powers of Shazam because Mary Marvel, 
apparently saved Diana's life. She was defeated by Hera last issue. Mary Marvel revived Diana by giving Diana, gifting Diana all of her powers of Shazam. So now Wonder Woman is basically Wonder Woman Shazam. She battles Hera and she's about to be defeated and Wonder Woman just uh, manages. Uh, she still doesn't have enough power to defeat Hera. But when she apparently there's a scene, it doesn't make much sense, but it. Uh, Wonder Woman gives a speech to herself saying a goddess can call upon the power of all who serve her. But allies fight as equals when can call upon much more. So apparently a, uh, a goddess can call upon the power of all who serve her, which is not true, by the way. A goddess can't do that. That's not a power a goddess has at any point in the history of the DCU. But now suddenly this Wonder Woman can call upon the power of all who serve her. And she calls upon the determination, courage, resilience, intelligence, loyalty, strength. And it shows pictures of Shazam and Mary Marvel and Cheetah and, and Etta Candy and uh, Steve Trevor and, and Liara Floor. And with that, she defeats Hera. And then Hera gets all upset. And then apparently out, out pops, uh, you know, uh, one of the gods pops up and says, well, uh, it's, it's over, uh, Hera, it, it is over, Hera, learn to see when you're beaten, and, and these, the other gods say, look, I, I guess we're evenly matched, Wonder Woman, I guess we're evenly matched, so let's just all call it a day, uh, but that's not enough for Wonder Woman, uh, and it shouldn't be, because, you know, the gods have attacked them, and now they just want to go back, they've lost, and they just want to go back and call it a day, and, well, what assurances can Wonder Woman get that the gods aren't going to attack them again. And apparently, and this is my favorite, I've given this a name, it's called the hand job solution. They've got a golden hand, the golden hand job. It's the golden hand job solution. You got the golden hand job of Eros, you know, the god of love. If you take his golden hand and you keep it, that's the golden hand job right there. And you, you got the golden glove. And apparently if you keep Eros's golden hand, Apparently, that's really going to piss him off, and it's his right hand. Yes, it's that one, and it's going to. It's going to. Apparently, holding that hand, his golden hand, is going to prevent the gods from ever attacking humanity again. I don't get this. This makes no sense at all. This is so stupid. This is so stupid. And then, I mean, a one god Eros cries like a little baby, but that's mine. It isn't yours to give away, Ares. He's talking about his hand. <laughs> and why give it to them? For what purpose? To keep all of you honest, Atlantiades says. Honest? How is keeping Eros's golden hand keeping the gods honest? This makes no sense. This is ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. But it gets worse. It gets worse. Because at some point at the end of this, you know, uh, Hera goes back to Olympus and apparently... The other gods have decided, well, they've given up on her and they're, they're going to kick her out. And the wizard, the wizard, the, the same wizard who was on Hera's side, the same wizard who was a murderer who killed Zeus, he says the wizard is in favor of kicking Hera out and says, after that shameful display, I have come here with a heavy heart to deliver a message. You are unworthy, Hera. The wizard is saying this. Talk about the, the pot calling the kettle black. The wizard who killed Zeus with his, like, staff. And he's, he's preaching to Hera? And it gets worse. The wizard then, at the end, at the backup, he goes and he's going to give a speech. And he's going to determine whether or not 
you know, he wants to he wants to talk with. Uh, at the end, the wizard shows up and he wants to talk to Billy. And this is in the backup. So the wizard's going to talk to Billy. And what's the first thing that Billy says to the wizard? Instead of Billy, I mean, I know Billy's just a kid and he's been betrayed and written like an idiot. But instead of Billy saying to the wizard, why did you kill Zeus right in front of me? Rather graphically, why did you do that? Or, or, you know, why did you do that? No, okay, it wasn't right in front of him, but you know, why did you kill Zeus? No, Billy's more concerned with, I'm sorry, I'm not worthy. Billy says to the wizard, why don't you give the power of Shazam to my sister? And then, of course, Mary Marvel says, no, 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 you, you deserve the power of Shazam. And because they're both selfless, the wizard decides that, well, Billy, you're so worthy. The wizard then decides that he was the one that was unworthy. So let me just back up here. The wizard apologizes for his behavior. So it wasn't, just to show how bad this story was written, at the beginning of this event, we were told that it was Lazarus' reign that infected the wizard that was causing him to act like a psychopath, leading to him killing Zeus. But now, I guess, no, I guess it wasn't the Lazarus' reign. I guess the wizard is just being an asshole. The the wizard just did that for, for shits and giggles, and now he's apologizing for it. And just as he's about to reward, he rewards Billy, gives him the power of Shazam back. Just as he's about to uh, re- reward Mary Marvel, Mary Bromfield, by giving her powers back, Hippolyta shows up, that other hypocrite, that other prejudicial, bigoted woman who doesn't like men. And if you want proof, let's listen to her own words. Hippolyta shows up and says to the wizard, Wizard, Shazam, this is, bef- this is as the wizard's trying to give the power back to Mary Marvel. She said, Wizard, Shazam, fool. She has no need for your second-hand gifts. For Mary Marvel stands in no man's shadow. <laughs> and then she proceeds to give Mary Marvel powers from Amazon goddesses so that Mary Marvel can stand in women's shadow. So standing in a man's, standing in men's shadow is wrong, but standing in woman's shadow is good. Again, you see a common theme here throughout the Clunrad runs, Jay Willer Rilso, this whole, this, this shunning of anything, anything associated with testosterone. I mean, this is just, it's in your face. And it's just, but it, so much so that it's hilarious. So now Mary Marvel has all these Amazonian gods, which, whose names are made up so that they can all spell Shazam, which again, while I actually, I want to be blunt. I find that kind of cool. I, I like Mary Marvel having her own gods. And if you want to make them Amazonian gods, okay, that's, that's kind of cool. But how we got there, I thought was really, really pathetic. And, and just frankly, shameful, shameful that Hippolyta could be this bigoted and this, that the language, I mean, I, I know the wizard is a murderer, uh, uh, but I mean, it's not like, I mean, Hippolyta herself and all the gods are, their conduct was shameful, but for, uh, to, to, I mean, to insult all the gods of Shazam by suggesting that Mary Marvel is standing in their shadow. Again, it's the language here that I find appalling. And if you just, if you dig, dig behind the scenes, it's just, it, there's, there's no excuse for it. There's no excuse for it. And, uh, but again, you know, we can let it all go. And in the meantime, of course, we have, we have the other backup, which is completely superfluous and unnecessary. Nubia's useless. I mean, the Amazons, the Amazons are gifted. The gods give the Amazons their, their island back. And the island is subject to all their protections. 
And the irony here is that Queen Nubia, once again displaying no intelligence, says at the end that now that now that Themyscira, now that they got their protection back and they're protected and they got their magical boundaries and the boundaries between man's world and them is, is reinstated. And against man's world, it's not humanity because that would suggest there's two genders, but it's only man's world. Uh, she says, it's time for we Amazons, it's time that we Amazons controlled our own destiny. Well, Nubia, you've always controlled your own destiny. And now what you've done is that you've continued to shut yourself off from the rest of humanity, thanks to your Amazonian goddesses who have cut Themyscira off from the rest of the world, which is probably a good thing because every time a man stumbles on your island, you want to kill him. Uh, literally, you will kill them. Uh, and this is, this is your attitude. Uh, you want to get along. With the rest of the world, you have a you have an, a floating embassy outside Boston Harbor. You have an uh, you have a you have a United Na- Amazonian Themyscarans uh, attending the United Nations, but you you cut yourself off from the rest of the world, and and now now you think everything's made whole again because your Amazonian goddesses, who supposedly were fighting against you early on, this was revenge of the gods. Now all of a sudden, everyone's. Everything's returned to normal. Everyone's happy again. The gods, even Hades. Hades invades the mascara. Nubia scolds Hades. Hades said, oh, sorry, we were misinformed. Uh, we thought you, you Amazons had left their paradise. Hades literally stops fighting them and goes back to Hades. This is, this is such a nothing event. Um, but again... It was nice for Mary Marvel to get her own uh, Amazonian goddesses to so she can spell Shazam. And, and now she's not linked to the wizard anymore. So, you know, she's not linked to those evil male gods. Mary Marvel will never, ever be in a man's shadow ever again. It will only be women's shadow and everyone can breathe a sigh of relief. But anyways, I mean, I don't. I'm just glad this is this event's over and I'm looking forward to Tom King. Um, because, uh, I know, I hope Tom King isn't saying, hold my beer, but, uh, I can't imagine his story is going to be as bad as this, but y- you never know, but I'm, I'm hoping that not, <laughs> I'm hoping not, but I'll, sorry, man, my rant is over. Tell me what you think. I didn't think it was that bad. I mean, <laughs> I really don't care to be honest. Like what, I mean, is it switching over? some female characters to be sort of championed by female gods and female power a hundred percent. But I don't really see why I should care one way or the other. Like if you go back and look at the history of comics and the history of the world, really, if we want to be really honest and a little more broad about it, the the history of mankind is rife with misogyny. So I don't kind of don't mind if the pendulum swings back the other way. Maybe we're overcurrent. Um, maybe it bothers some people. It doesn't bother me. I don't care. I'm fine. I mean, I, mean, I think it, in a way, it's balancing the scales, right? To have uh, Mary Marvel championed by female gods rather than male gods. Is it a little heavy-handed talking about standing in their, sh- you know, the shadows of men? Yeah, it probably is. But again, how many women didn't get credit in the history of the world for things they did because they were standing in the shadows of men? So it's kind of like. You know, speaking truth to power in a way, and I don't really have a problem with that. Is it a good story? Is this the right place for it? Well, you know, the argument could be made, no, it's not the right place for it. It's not going to reach the right audience. But at the same time, you got to do what you got to do, right? Like Jubilee Wilson, this is her platform. DC wants her to write. She's going to write what she wants to write. They have editorial approval. So whatever. Again, 
I'm not going to waste time getting upset about it. It doesn't bother me. I think it's fine. I, th- I think it's even interesting in a way. Um, my, you know, my problem with the story and this whole Wonder Woman run has just been like, technically it hasn't been that great, like in terms of pacing, in terms of being interesting and that sort of stuff. Like I, I have a problem with it more on like a technical level than any sort of uh, like, you know, gender uh, sort of balancing or, you know, SJW stuff or whatever. I really couldn't possibly care less about that. I, I sort of feel like it's a long time coming to be, you know, to be honest. And again, it's all just a product of society and where we are. I mean, that's, that's how you can judge a society. I say it all the time. Like you learn a lot about a society where they're at by the fiction and the fantasies that, that they create. And there is a course correction going on in society right now with how women have been second-class citizens for the majority of the vast majority, right, of humanity's existence. So I don't mind if it swings back the other way. Does that mean that uh, individually that, you know, if I'm as qualified as a female and she gets a job over me and the only difference is because she's a female, yeah, that sucks for me and I'll be pissed off about it. But at the same time, I got to be lying if I said that I, you know, wouldn't understand it. Um, So anyway, setting that aside, like this actual story, Again, you have to sort of read between the lines on what's going on. Like you talked about it's his right hand and you're making these tongue and cheeks. from right. It, it wasn't just his hand. It wasn't just a golden hand or his right hand. It was the hand of desire, right? And that's to me why it matters, right? When you talk about how petty, how vindictive, how sort of narcissistic and egotistical these gods are, the Greek gods, always have been in every story – you know, in Greek mythology, uh, if you've studied it at all in high school or college or what have you, you know, we all know the stories. So I think in a way, taking that symbol of what the God, like why the gods do what they do. Why do these Greek gods do what they do? Well, it's out of desire, desire to be worshipped, desire to be loved, desire to have power, desire to, you know, lord over people, basically. And you've taken that, right? You've taken that, you've given it to a demigod and you've said, hey, knock it off. You guys quit being bitches for, you know, lack of a better term, quit being bastards. Uh, we're going to take this. We're going to take the symbol of your power, the symbol of why you do what you do, like the gods, why they do what they do, at least in the mythology of Greece, as interpreted by DC comics, they do what they do out of greed, out of desire to have power, to be worshiped, to be loved, that sort of thing. So I didn't think it was the worst um, I did think, and I'll agree with you that it wasn't handled really well. Like that to me, like his golden hand being the hand of desire and sort of being, and again, I'm, I'm totally reading between the lines here of, of what's actually happening. Maybe that wasn't what, what was intended. If it was the big mistake in the story is that that wasn't made clear earlier. So that when somebody reads this, yeah. that it does impact like, oh shit, here, here's the reason the gods were you know, willing to side with Hera, the, you know, the gods and attack or whatever, out of desire to be worshipped, to be loved, whatever. And a driving force, you know, sort of a, a totem of power of their army is the golden hand of desire. And then that's taken, right? The the, the symbol of their um, power, basically, their, the impetus, the reason they're doing what they're doing is taken and we're going to hold it. Uh, then that means something, right? Even if it's something as simple as just a talisman, you know, like capture the flag, it means something. Uh, but that wasn't spelled out. 
And so I'm left here trying to make sense of the story, thinking, okay, I think I get what's going on. I think I get what they're going for. It's, this is why the hand matters. This is why it's taken away from them. But I could be completely wrong, and maybe it doesn't have anything to do with it. That's the only way I can make sense of the story. Yeah. The I, I, this doesn't work. That that's not my job, right? As a reader, well, I have to be figuring it out. Well, like, I want, I I want to give that. you some credit. I want to give you some credit. I, I mean, you're doing what I think you're doing what you're supposed to do. We readers are supposed to do our best to read in between the lines, and and you're doing your best to give verisimilitude and, and believability to the story. But I, but I, but I, at the end of the day, I don't believe that hand. You know, it was Eros's hand, and it's just not. That was never explained. It was just out of nowhere. And, and, and that's, that's, that's your central point. Sorry. That's my point. Yeah. It's, it's too much work. And, and the only reason I even get, the only reason you can even make that leap, the only reason I'm making it right is, is before Hera, right? We're talking all the way back in Wonder Girl early issues, which weren't very good. Eros was sort of a, a I wouldn't go so far as to say a bad guy, but he was certainly an antagonist for Yara Floor. So he's been built up as, this antagonist all this time. And that's why I can kind of think, well, in a way he was kind of the impetus and Hera was brought in or whatever. And Hera was done dirty, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of Greek mythology where Hera is sort of the, the protagonist, right? She's sort of the sympathetic one. She exhibits compassion and, you know, kind of goes behind Zeus's back and helps out when he's punished a mortal and this sort of thing, man, they've made her out to be, yeah. they've Amanda Wallard Hera. Yeah. She's a total scumbag. Yeah. But- so, yeah. I guess interesting in its own way. Well, no, I just want to say, like, what about the other aspect of this is why does Diana, I mean, Wonder Woman never confronts the wizard and say, by the way, why did you kill my, why did you kill my dad? You killed my well, father. So I was just and she never idea. once confronts wizard with it. Never once holds the wizard. Isn't the wizard worthy of maybe somebody walking up to the wizard and holding him accountable for murder of a god? Yeah, so I was just going to get to that. Like, And here, here's kind of the biggest problem that I've had with this entire Wonder Woman run. We've talked about it a lot in terms of DC a lot lately. So as the series, this whole Wonder Woman era, as it's gone on, Wonder Woman, Diana, has become less and less and less important in her own book. I don't pick up Wonder Woman to read about Yara Floor or Nubia or Etta Candy. Or Trevor, uh, Trevor, or Siegfried, or Cheetah. <laughs> I don't care. I want to read about Wonder Woman and to a lesser extent the Amazons. And it's gotten too big, right? Three tribes, the Esquita, the other, uh, I can't remember what the other one's called. Um, uh, Bagam- Banner McDoll. Yeah. Banner McDoll. Yeah. I, 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 it's too much. It's too much. So if I, if anything, and when I'm looking forward to the Tom King run, it's getting back to basics, getting back to, let me, let me pick up Wonder Woman to read about Wonder Woman. Um, because yeah, I, like when she does something like you were saying, how she doesn't confront the wizard, you know, what Zeus's uh, final disposition is not touched on at all, which we got to, I mean, he's a God, he should be immortal. Yeah. We know <laughs> Diana's gone and rescued them from the graveyard of the gods before. He certainly could come back with comics. That's not even mentioned. You know, not surprising that it's not mentioned. Again, Wonder Woman ha- has lacked agency in her own book for so long that I wasn't surprised. The art is solid. The storytelling and the pacing, it has gotten better throughout this run. But echo Rocky sentiments and just, I'm glad this is over. It went too long. And at the end of the day, I think I, I give, I'll give credit for them trying to be too ambitious, trying to do too much. You know, it's, it's not focused and it's not, it's not Wonder Woman. Like, try to establish this whole 
uh, Amazonian corner of the DC universe. Like, is it that uh, editorial looks at Batman and goes, God, Batman supports so many books with all these side characters and people mm-hmm. just love. And it's like, Wonder Woman is not Batman. Even Superman is not Batman. Green Arrow is not Batman. It's like, it's almost like, you know, I was talking about the whole idea of, you know, women-centric versus men-centric and how the pendulum has swung too far. DC editorial sort of done the same thing, right? Like, remember they threw the baby out with the bathwater when they did the New 52 and it sold like gangbusters. And the reason, part of the reason that it failed, at least what DC has uh, espoused and what they believe, and I sort of agree with them. I mean, Dan Didio and Jim Lee came right out and said, yeah, the mistake was we threw the legacy part out and that didn't work. And now it's like they've swung too far and now it's too much about legacy. And yeah, there's some nostalgia. You know, we just talked about Roy Harper and his daughter and how we care about that stuff. But Mm-hmm. Wonder Woman book still needs to be focused on Wonder Woman. A Green Arrow book still needs to be focused on Green Arrow. Like, you know, there's a reason that fans of these characters pick up these books because they want to read about that character. Nobody's picking up a Wonder Woman book wanting to read about Nubia. I just don't think that that's true. If you want to read about Nubia, then have a Nubia. They have, right? They have. Um, and, you know, did the sales dictate that it continue? Well, apparently not because there's not a Nubia book right now. So anyway, uh, let's move on. Unstoppable Doom Patrol number two, written by Dennis Culver. Chris Burnham is the artist. Brian Reber on colors. Pat Brosso on letters. Man, the art in this is so fantastic. I love what Chris Burnham is doing. Uh, and I got to think that fans of the Grant Morrison version of Doom Patrol are probably really loving this. I've never read any of that stuff. So I'm sort of coming into this cold in terms of a lot of who these characters are, Crazy Jane and all, all that. You know, like the last time I read Doom Patrol was the... I think it was 1980s series. Uh, <laughs> awesome Steve Lytle covers. Couldn't even tell you who wrote it, but th- you know that was the Doom Patrol I knew, kind of the, the four-person team, sort of the DC Universe version of the Fantastic Four, if you will. So this is all sort of new to me, but I am enjoying it. I think a lot of it has to do with the art and the aesthetic. Um, you know, coming to find out that yeah, there, there's a lot of weird stuff that goes on here between Flex Metallo and Crazy Jane and all these other characters that we're being introduced to Niles Calder in this version seems to be nefarious, if you will. Um, so yeah, this is a little bit weird and a little bit out there for me, but it's enjoyable and peacemaker as the bad guy, I think is interesting as well. So, um, again, I'm not bringing a lot to this in terms of doom patrol knowledge. So, you know, I can't really speak to that, but as a standalone with where it's at right now, it's pretty interesting. And I think the art and colors are fantastic. So, uh, what are your thoughts, Rocky? Uh, well, I, I actually, I, I had to read this. You know, I had a very curious experience reading this because when I first read it, I was very underwhelmed. And I read it a second time and I found myself actually wanting to read it a third time, which is rare. And then when I was finished reading it the third time, I, dis- I discovered that I really enjoyed it. <laughs> and, and, uh, and that's because, first of all, just a little bit of background. I, too, am not very familiar with the Doom Patrol. And I say that even having collected the last two series. But there's been so many iterations of the Doom Patrol. This one didn't actually feel all that familiar to me, to be honest. Uh, but I actually found myself uh, really getting... I, I, I like the idea of the Lazarus Reign creating potential metahumans on the planet, on the planet. And the Doom Patrol's job is to sort of 
sort of discover them and find them. And what we discover here in this issue, and it was hinted at in the opening issue, is that there's sort of a battle of, will, battle of wills between the, the new chief, Crazy Jane, and Dr. Miles Calder, who is the old chief. And there's even a full, full page, uh, full page proposal that Dr. Calder gives Crazy Jane saying he wants to create an orange team where she's the field leader called the chief and he's the, he's the executive of the white team and that they, they divvy up responsibilities and their hunt for all these metahumans on the planet and try to try in the, with their ultimate goal of protecting them. So that's kind of cool. We got that behind the scenes. Meanwhile, this entire opening, uh, this entire issue is called Worm's Eye View and Worm's Eye View is reference to, uh, to, uh, Velvet and Worm, which are these characters where this character named Velvet, who's got a blue worm living in his stomach, who, uh, can sort of, uh, has got his own sense of powers and it's, it's, and is actually secretly working for Peacemaker, who, as, as Task Force X, is trying to spy on the Doom Patrol to find out what it is they're doing. And ultimately, Worm ends up getting, uh, the entire issue seems, most of it seems to be focused on this Worm character. And, or pardon me, this velvet character, and and ultimately he ends up dying at the end with the the brain with the bomb in his brain exploding because Peacemaker uh, Peacemaker is in fact the child killer. So I, those of you who love him on that fantastic TV series know that in the comic books he's a, he's a confirmed child killer. He blow he's got no problem blowing the the head off of a young child. Uh, but it ends up that the true spy that Peacemaker sent in was actually the worm. The the worm itself is the spy that's part of the Doom Patrol. Meanwhile, we get we, uh, the, the most fascinating new character that I really love of this Doom Patrol. I got to give a shout out to this character called Jerry. She's the Doom Patrol's new psychologist, and she she consists of five personalities or five alien personalities sort of make up five intelligences make up her her head and uh and their names are the acronym for all the names jachin ikum rez raz and Ziz, the acronym is jerry and she, it's a very interesting take on on the child <laughs> so it's going to be interesting to see her character moving forward in terms of what kind of psychology she makes for the team and so if you think of the x-men and i and i hate drawing the comparisons to the x-men but a lot of people are uh, the, the the character of Charles Xavier, I think, has been broken up between Crazy Jane with multiple personalities, Doctor Miles Calder, and even this Jerry character, who's probably the heart and soul of the of this psychology of the team. And very interesting. There's even a hint at a future a metahuman that they're going to probably help out in future issues. Uh, there's even uh, Robot Man was at the graveside uh, is at the graveside of a former member by the name of. Um, Doc, or uh, what's her name? Um, Dorothy Spinner, uh, who died in comic books back in volume three in 2001. And Dorothy Spinner had the ability to uh, any creature that she imagined could come to life. And she died under precarious circumstances. And so I, I suspect Dr. or, or uh, Dorothy Spinner is going to make, make her way back into this uh, title somehow. And so this is something where uh, writer Dennis Culver, he's really, he clearly has a knowledge of the Doom Patrol. He's weaved a lot of, a lot of things into this. We got a whole slew of characters here. Uh, we got Degenerate, Seidel Simon, Flex Mentalo, Beast Girl, Worm and Velvet, Robot Man, Dorothy Spinner, um, Negative Man, Rita Farr, and Dr. Sinkle. 
And to top it off, we even got the hint of another faction of the Doom Patrol called the Graveminders, which is the mystic division of the Doom Patrol, consisting of Miles Calder, Lady Purple, Dr. Kipling, who is the leader, and Silo Simon. So all of this, along with fantastic uh, Chris Burnham art, he does a fantastic job at the beginning doing a cross-section of the shelter, which is the name of the Doom Patrol headquarters. And then later on in the issue, he does a fantastic job of showing various rooms with the various characters uh, and what they're doing when, when they're in their off time. And this this issue, I never appreciated how much is jam-packed in this issue until I read it three times. <laughs> and I'm glad that I did because I got a good appreciation for it. And I, I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to see where this uh, goes moving forward. Yeah, again, it's uh, it's really interesting. And, you know, both of us don't have extensive knowledge of Doom Patrol and we're enjoying it. So, you know, kudos. And it's we're not being spoon-fed, right? Like I just talked about Green Arrow, how – it's like, man, anybody who knows Green Arrow, you've sort of wasted real estate. Uh, Dennis Culver doesn't do that, but yet it still feels new reader friendly. So kudos to him. Uh, all right. Up next, the conclusion of Blue Beetle Graduation Day with issue number six. This is from writer Josh Trujillo. Adrian Gutierrez is the artist. Will Contana on colors. Louis Gattoni on letters. Man, graduation day. Um, such an appropriate title for the story, right? Like he, at first you take it as, okay, Jaime Reyes has graduated from high school, doesn't know what he's going to do with the rest of his life. And so we're going to tell the story of graduation day about, you know, what his next step is. It turns out much different to be much different than that. Um, and it's sort of him graduating in the eyes of a lot of the other DC characters, Superman, Batman, the Titans, less so black Condor, <laughs> who seems to be just a dick in this uh, title, but um, the horizon shows up and they, they're saved by Jaime. Their ship is about to crash into earth. They're saved by Jaime and the rest of the heroes, Batman and uh, Superman both encourage Jaime to, to take the lead. Uh, they follow him. They trust him. Then when the horizon actually is out of their ship, they're ready to attack Jaime to them. He's uh, the reach. He's the enemy. Some of the other beetles that we've seen in recent issues uh, vouch for Jaime as do the, the rest and uh, it ends up being a real cool come together moment. And then the chords show up and they uh, sort of go along with what Jaime thinks because like, okay, well, these people, the horizon, they need a planet. Let's go find a planet. Let's, um, you know, relocate them sort of the default thing to do. And an alien race shows up and is sort of abandoned or orphaned and can no longer travel. Maybe all these writers have just seen Battlestar, the original Battlestar Galactica too many times. Uh, Jaime wants them to stay there in Palmyra City. And of course, we know uh, what Victoria Cord thinks about, you know, leveraging alien technology and all that sort of thing. So she's on board as well. And really, it all falls down to Jaime. He's the one that's going to have to make this work. Thus, he has graduated. Thus, the extra responsibility. Thus, graduation day, as opposed to a gap year, which he thought it was going to be. So I thought sort of metatextually, it all came together really, really well. I think uh, the color work fits the Gutierrez sort of bombastic line work really, really well. If I have any complaint about the artist, it can tend to be a little bit light on backgrounds at times, but I didn't mind it so much because I completely understand there are a lot of characters in this, right? Like Cyborg, Starfire, you know, different Beatles, Superman, Batman. There's a lot to, to draw for Adrian. So, you know, I'll give him a little bit of a pass going light on backgrounds. Overall, I thought this was really, really good. It ended up being different much different than what I expected. It introduces a lot of interesting ideas to the Blue Beetle mythos, at least the Jaime Reyes version of Blue Beetle. Um, 
and you know we did get some Ted Cord in here as well. Uh, and it left me wanting more, right? Like I, I can't remember the last time I read a Blue Beetle series that ended where I went, yeah, I wish there was another issue. It's not that they've been bad, but it's just been sort of like, okay, well, that's over and I'm fine with it. Um, but man, I, I am curious, like what comes next with these members of the Horizon living in Palmyra City? What comes next with Jaime Reyes? What comes next with these other Beatles that we're, we're introduced to, Dynastis, and I, I can't remember what the green one's called, but uh, I, yeah, really impressed with what Josh Trujillo was able to do here in uh, in six issues. I really uh, enjoyed this much more than I expected. Again, because it's co- completely different than what I expected. And, you know, we were talking last issue when issue five came out, like the horizon, we're almost there. And we're like, how is this big epic fight going to happen in one issue? How's it all going to get resolved? Probably going to end on some cliffhanger of the invasion starting. I'm so glad we didn't get that right. That would have been what was expected. That would not have been interesting and and taken us in a different direction. And that's exactly what Trujillo did. And I think I, more than anything, I welcomed that it was not what was expected, but still was really good and really pushed Jaime Reyes forward as a character. You know, I talked to <laughs> I talked to Josh Trujillo at WonderCon, you know, like six weeks ago or whenever it was, and you know, we were talking about how. Jaime Reyes has been around since Infinite Crisis, but he's been sort of stagnant, right? He hasn't learned any lessons. He's still that young. He's seen as that young kid, that young hero that makes mistakes and hasn't learned from them. He hasn't really matured. He hasn't grown that much as a character um, because he's been sort of pigeonholed. This is growth. This is evolution. This is interesting. So uh, I was really impressed. I enjoyed it. What did you think? Uh, You're on mute, Rocky. Sorry about that. Yeah, I, I was uh, impressed and it's I was so glad this is in. We had another example. Deceased uh, War of the New Undead Gods ended on a high high note. Well, kind of a sad note, but it was a great ending to that series. And this is another one. The sixth and final issue of Blue Beetle Graduation Day. It ends on a high note. It's the best issue of the series so far, which frankly it should be. You want to end on a positive high note with teases, teases of what's to come with this gimmicks character. And, you know, it reminded me of something. I remember back in the in the day, man, It's this is going back a ways, maybe... Oh, I don't know, 20, 30 years reading comics, there was an unwritten rule in the Justice League. And the, and the rule was this, that if the Justice League happened to call up, come upon a crisis in Metropolis, there was an unspoken rule that Superman would take the lead because it's his city. And if you were in Coast City and there was a crisis, Green Lantern would make the call. And if you were in Gotham, Batman would make the call. And if you were in whatever city, that character would make the call. You know, in other words, they respected each other's home turf. And I couldn't help but thinking as I'm watching this, the unbelievable respect that was really good to see that Superman and Batman and the members of the Justice League and some of the members of the Titans here, who are of course are going to be, I guess, the new Justice League, the respect that they 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 give uh, Jaime Reyes uh, to maybe take to take the lead because these are his enemies. This is part of his rogues gallery, and that's sort of an unwritten rule. And I like that. I like that unwritten rule, sort of like a bro code, sister code, whatever you want to call it. You know, it's like, if it's your enemy, you call the shots, you know what's going on. And they do that. They respect Jaime Reyes's call. Jaime Reyes says, look, the horizon need help. They're crashing. They're not invading. 
They, they need our help. We need to help them. And then when they get there to find out the horizon also need a home because they're refugees. Well, that's for those who are reading, re- reading Superman comics. Hey, guess what? We had, we had all those, uh, theologian refugees. If it's one thing Superman can relate to, it's alien refugees and the attitude that the world might have toward alien refugees. And so, you know, Jaime Reyes is going to have Superman on his side there. And even though that's not directly called on, it's, I like the fact that I like the fact that Jaime is thinking a lot like, you know, a lot like Superman would. And he's got and he's he's, you know, he he only, he has a lot of agency. And even though he's a young teenager and he and he's but this really is a graduation day. As you said, the the term graduation day isn't just a, an academic achievement for Jaime Reyes. It really is in this story. It's him coming of age to take his place alongside the other mythological heroes of the DC universe in a way that I think is a lot, as, as you said, is a very long time coming. A, the, the action sequences I thought were fantastic. The color work I think was particularly great. I loved the sequences. I thought it was, I, I thought it was, it was enjoyable. Uh, I love the fact that, that these other Beatles, uh, they, they don't, you know, no one, they, nobody steals the scene from anyone. And I love the fact that everyone works together. And and I love the fact that when you could understand why the Justice League looked it with doubt on Jaime Reyes, you could understand why they doubted him. And and you could also understand why they chose to have faith with him as this six issues progressed. This was very well done, I think. And I'm looking forward to more more Blue Beetle. And I might even check out that movie because I really like the, the the trailer of the Blue Beetle. That was actually an enjoyable trailer to watch. I finally watched it the other day. So, yeah, all in all, this is this is a this has been a pretty good. Uh, I would I would recommend this series to people who want to give it a look see. Yeah, I went to the movies this last weekend for the first time in a long time, twice, because my son was in town. Uh, saw yeah. the Flash preview twice. Oh, yeah. It actually looks pretty good. It actually looks huh? pretty good, despite misgivings about, I can't remember the guy's name, the crazy uh, main star. Ezra Miller. So, yeah, yeah, Ezra Miller. There you go. Yeah. Uh, so, anyway, moving on. Tim Drake, Robin, number eight, uh, winding down here, written by Megan Fitzmartin. Nicola Semeja does the art. Lee Luffridge on colors. Tom Napolitano on letters. Man, it's I'm, the thing I'm having a rough time with because for the most part, I think this has been a good series. I know a lot of people haven't liked it, um, but knowing that it's canceled, knowing that it hasn't been well received, it sort of casts this Paul this negative connotation over the series, and I'm I'm trying not to let it influence my read because I think um, there's interesting stuff going on here. But in this issue in particular with Batwoman showing up, I sort of felt like this, like I feel a lot about DC stuff. We've talked about it ad nauseum here in this episode. I don't feel like I get enough Tim Drake. I don't feel like I get enough of what's going on with him. Um, Batwoman shows up. There's this overriding theme throughout the issue about why Tim's chosen to live on a boat. But it, it's all superficial. Like, like, give me Tim's thoughts. Give me insight into what Tim is actually thinking. Uh, because I feel like it's, I don't know if it's all just contextual and I'm not picking up on it. Or if it, this is just like really superficial and there isn't something more. But it feels like it's, this particular issue was missing something for me that hasn't been missing up to this point. Like, I felt like it's been very Tim Drake focused. Um, and this issue didn't. And so, and maybe that's why it felt like a little bit of a swerve to me because uh, Fitzmartin has done such a good job of sort of letting us inside Tim's emotions and Tim's thoughts. 
and this one didn't. And so it felt a little different. Uh, I don't know. Can't, can't put my hand on it. And Semedge's art is, it's okay. I'm not the biggest fan of his style, but it's okay. Um, and see, and don't get me wrong. I am happy to see Batwoman. I'm, I'm a fan of, uh, of Kate Kane. I think she's an interesting character. So I was, you know, glad that she showed up here. I just, again, I really wish I got a little more from Tim himself. Um, so anyway, what are your thoughts? Um, well, uh, it's par for the course for me. I, I, I thought the, I thought I at first I this issue started off simple enough, but then it it got, it got confusing to me. I, it wonder or pardon me, Batwoman just ends up falling on the boat. Uh, I agree with you that I, I never understood uh, Tim Drake's reasoning for deciding to live on a boat. It it didn't make any sense. I understand the whole thing, and and I don't want to get into the debate again. You and I, I would, you and I have had some heated debates on this this title, and I I can appreciate and, and you you articulated your viewpoint well in terms of what you think Fitzmartin was trying to do and having Tim Drake go on his own and you know find himself and you know I guess living on a marina 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 and being independent was his way of doing so as he worked through his feelings for Bernard. That's all. That's all been established well enough. Um, and and here we have him sort of talking about reflecting on the fact that he's living on a boat and Batwoman, you know, she, she shows up. We're not really sure. There's something wrong with Batwoman's mind. She her her recollection, her memory is skewed. It's been negatively impacted by something. We don't really know. Somebody's had a negative impact on her state of mind and her memory. She doesn't even remember interacting with Tim Drake and uh, with Bernard in 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 past events were in one of their coming out parties or something. And uh, she's, she's confused. And meanwhile, then suddenly the chaos monster attacks again. And I honestly don't even remember what the chaos monster was. I think that was from maybe their first, the first uh, Tim Drake adventure that uh, Fitzmartin wrote. I, I don't even know what the chaos monster is. It, I never understood it at the time and I still don't now. Uh, and then at the end, I don't understand who this guy is at the end. I don't even know. It's not even explained how they end up going to this guy on a roof at the end. It doesn't make any sense. And I don't know who attacked Sparrow. That's not clear in either the narrative uh, or I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure who – I'm not sure exactly – I'm not sure what happened to, to Sparrow. So I, I thought it was confusing again. And um, I blame the art for that, and I also blame the writing for that. Uh, but I suppose I could blame myself for that because I haven't understood much of what of, of the sense of the progression of this from the beginning of this series. And I just I can't sugarcoat the fact that I just I find myself continuously perplexed by this. But um, yeah, I. <laughs> there's one more issue left or two. I'm not sure. Uh, but there, there's a reason why, you know, people have been, there, there's a reason why, um, there's a reason why people have been, uh, uh, sort of crying out for a, a, a good Tim Drake story and have been going to, uh, other comic books in the pages like Batman, for example, to get it. But in any event, uh, I, <sighs> This was meh for me. It's meh for me. If frankly, if you've been on the boat of this Tim Drake series for as long as you have, 
uh, you're going to you're going to want to pick this up. And I, I will give a shout out, a speculator alert, the, the cover B of of last issue of Robin, of uh, Tim Drake, Robin number seven with the, the shirtless Tim Drake. That's like the speculator alert. I think that's going for 40 or 50 or 60 bucks, you know. Uh, because, you know, just because, so that cover. So this does have some positive attention to it. It's not all been sort of negative. Uh, so, you know, let's, let's give some credit with respect, at least to the cover art. And, um, that's all I got to say about that. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. Uh, all right, let's move on. Uh, the aforementioned detective comics is up next. Uh, I'll give my, Thoughts about it. I think Rocky's already talked a lot about it. Why don't you uh, give a quick recap? You know, we mentioned a, some a new origin for Ra's al Ghul. Why don't we kind of explain to people what what Ram V has added to the mythos here of Ra's al Ghul? Okay, uh, and I, I gotta say, I, I read this. I read this twice, almost three times, to try to get uh, sort of a handle on this and. Uh, for those reading it who might see things a little bit differently, you might be right. So, th- but I'm I'm giving the Coles notes as I see it, and uh, the the Orgum family, thousands of years ago, thousands of years ago, uh, the the Queen Orgum, D- Daria Orgum, she was the she was the daughter of the Sands, and she married Zidane, who was the son of the wind, and both those houses. Essentially, uh, the origins of the Son of the Wind and the origins of the Daughters of the Sands, they've got a long history together. And uh, the, the uniting of their family, uh, they, they desired, Queen, Queen Orgum desired to have the treasures that were rumored to exist in the city of Urham. And the city of Urham, back in the day, consisted of all the uh, books that contained many secrets that rivaled the Library of Alexandria, and, and and it had famous waters that could bring the dead back to life, which we can assume are the Lazarus Pits. And this was all contained in the lost city of Ur- of, of Ur- Urkham. And, and what makes, or pardon me, Urham. And what makes this interesting is that the, this lost city of Urham had two, had had the sons of uh, the, the sons of the wind and the daughters of the sands making up this lost city, and each of them possess a stone, a stone that fell from a sky, from the sky. Basically, a meteorite fell from the sky and had two stones, and these stones basically gave them a, lo- a lot of uh, power. And it's um, <laughs> the. Uh, the the daughters of the sands communed with the stone, but it warped their minds, and it caused them to uh, essentially. Uh, uh, they ended up fighting with the sons of the wind, who uh, wanted to protect the city of Urham, protect its uh, protect its location and its secrets. But the daughters of the sands wanted to expand, and they became corrupted. And whereas before, the daughters of the sands and the sons of the wind were living in harmony with their two stones, uh, that disharmony was disrupted because the stones corrupted, uh, the, the one stone corrupted the daughter of the sands that created a war and the daughters eventually fled. And ultimately, uh, when the daughters were defeated and they were cast away and they, to, to find new lands, the sons of the wind stayed in the city of Urham and they decided that they could, uh, they, they, they left the city of Urham and they, they wanted to, uh, 
they wanted to make sure that no one else would find the city of Urham because they didn't they wanted to protect humanity from the potential corruption of the of the two stones coming together. I, that's kind of what I'm getting out of this. Meanwhile, Vandal Savage in the present, uh, because this Queen Orgam is still alive, and she's still alive in the future, and she she's been she, her mother is the one who still has one of these stones in her forehead. Right. And one of these stones is still in her forehead and it causes her to tell the future. And she foresees that Vandal Savage is going to come and overthrow the, the Daughters of the Sands, defeat Queen Orgham. Uh, but the only way that she warns, she warns Daria Orgham, the only way to defeat Vandal Savage in the present is to defeat, is to, is to, Take over Gotham from Batman, and then you'll be able to defeat Vandal Savage. Okay. Now, I'm sorry. I know this is a lot here. But there's a lot in this issue. So what does this have to do with the origin of Razagol? Well, deep, far in the past, when Queen Orgum sends her husband, Zidane, to try to find the lost city of Urham, she also, while she's sleeping with Roz... She's cheating on him with Raz Gaul. She sends Raz to along with Zidane and says, "When Zidane, when you guys find the lost city and you get the stone, I want you to kill my husband. Kill my husband Zidane because my mother doesn't like him. And of course, her, her mother is the one that has the stone in her head and doesn't and doesn't and he's he's considered like sort of a peasant because he's the son of the sand and sort of revenge because the do- sons of the sands defeated the daughters of the or the sons of the." The, the sons of the wind defeated the daughters of the sands. So she's all pissed off. Well, Raza Gaul ends up betraying her, and Raza Gaul decides that uh, he gives Zidane, he tells Zidane of, of, his, of his wife's betrayal. But Zidane, Zidane is convinced by one of the elders in the lost city of Urham to essentially, you know, of the dangers of letting other people get acquire the gifts, acquire the treasures of the city of Urham, the danger to humanity opposes. And so rather than go back, Zidane chooses to let Roz take his life uh, as opposed to expose uh, the treasures of Urham to the world. But Roz Ogal, you know, great guy that he is, Roz Ogal kills Zidane, but then steals the treasures for himself. So then Roz Ogal then steals all the books the knowledge contained with all the ancient knowledge, he steals the books and he steals the Lazar. He steals remnants of the water, which would become the Lazarus pit. And he takes that with him. And he also steals the Thelemus machine, which can make, which is powered by will. And Razagal is chased through the centuries by the daughters of Orgham. And he ends up losing the Thelemus machine to them. And that Thelemus machine is now being used in Gotham City to try to take the citizens of Gotham and change their will through the subways of Gotham, which is sort of like neural pathways in our brain. So the subway system in Gotham is like neural pathways in our brain. And the Thelemus machine is going to be used to turn the city itself into some kind of subconsciousness. And so the analogy here at the end of the day is that Batman is going to ultimately, Batman is warned by Talia, who's telling this story. She, he, Batman will have to choose between the city of Gotham and its people, just like Zidane had to be, was forced to choose between the lost city of Urham and his own legacy. So, <laughs> now I'm sorry, I don't know how I could have made that shorter. Uh, this was, uh, now, if you're frustrated or anybody listening is upset with having to 
endure me saying all this. I'm sorry. You're probably frustrated with this series so far because this is the 10th issue. We've had nine issues plus an annual to finally get here. There's a lot of, there's a lot revealed, but my, as much as I think that there are some cool factors to this new origin for Raza Gaul, the fact that it's taken this long to get here and there's a connection even to Vandal Savage, I think that this is a, this is a turnoff. And I think that uh, I don't know if this is going to be an easy sell for new readers trying to get up to date on Raza Gaul in the dawn of the DCU to have to read the first 10 issues to finally get to what I guess is a Raza Gaul story. This goes to your point, uh, Jace, that is this, this is a 10 issue Raza Gaul origin and it's, and, and the guest star is Batman and he really is a guest star in his own comic book. And I think that's a legitimate grievance. Now, having said that, I think the art's fantastic. I, 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 I enjoyed the story for what it was, but I can very easily see people throwing their hands up in the air in frustration reading this. And don't even get me started on the backup. We'll talk to that after your comments on the, on the main story. I wouldn't even say he's a guest. Isn't show up enough to even be a guest star? He's almost an afterthought in his own book. Uh, I don't, and you know, to, to devil's advocate and, and maybe go back a little bit. Maybe I'm being overly harsh. I don't know that I'd say ten issue Raz Al Ghul origin. C- certainly a ten issue Orgum origin, right? And I, I in defense of Ron V, I, he's building something so big here and so overreaching or, or widespread and so fundamental to the origin of Gotham city that maybe it has to be this big and maybe it, you know, it deserves, I mean, we, so often we say, Oh, they glossed over. We wish they would have taken more time to explain context, whatever, man, he is taking his time. He is fleshing out contextually <laughs> and really giving us a chance to understand just how, embedded in the origin of Gotham City and the earliest days of Gotham City, the Orgum family is. Um, but the problem is, like we said, Batman is such an afterthought that is anybody going to care? It's almost like I had this negative connotation with the Orgums and always will because they took Batman out of his own book, you know? And again, maybe we're being hypocritical. Like, it's not like we don't have enough Batman, you know? If I want to read <laughs> yeah. Batman stories, any number of other titles... But at the end of the day, it is Detective Comics. It is the flagship title, like I was saying earlier. So, you know, I can see it both ways. Um, but it's just a really dense read, like you said. And and I think the the problem is this story probably shouldn't have been told in Detective Comics. It probably should have been something else. Um, but then does it sell? You know, do even fewer people, you know, pick it up. There's a lot of people, myself included, that are going to keep buying it because – I've got a detective comics run and I don't, you know, it's the collector side of me. I, it's, I mean, yeah, obviously I don't have detective 27 or whatever, but I'm working my way back below, you know, I've from like 300 up and I'm working my way down. Um, so anyway, yeah, it's a bit dense and it's a tough read. And I, I keep, every time I read one of them, I feel like I'm missing something. There's something I'm not understanding. Something's not clicking for me. And I'm like, I need to go back and, you know, read them in big chunks, but that feels like such a chore, right? Like this work to go read Rom V's because <laughs> I swear every time I look at what page I'm on and go, wait, I'm only 10 pages in. I've been reading this thing for 45 minutes. You know, I guess it is good value for your comic dollar. Um, so I, I don't know what to think, honestly. I mean, did Ra's al Ghul need, 
more added to his origin. I mean, he, he seems a popular choice for writers to, um, Hey, he's immortal, right? So I can go back and add this and add that and whatever. Um, and yeah, God has, his has his character history become extremely complicated. Um, so interesting in its own way, I suppose. But yeah, I mean, my biggest problem is just, as I said, and as Rocky alluded to, there's just not enough Batman, which again, we have so much Batman in the DC universe, but if this story relates to Batman in a way, and and it does, because it's the origin of Gotham, we just haven't gotten there yet. And I think that's problematic when you're 10 issues in, as you alluded to. So anyway, as far as the backup goes, uh, and, and I will also agree with you that the art is fantastic. Great line work, great emotionality, great color work. So at least the book looks gorgeous. Uh, the backup, which is um, drawn by Casper Wingard. Uh, it's written by, let me get to the credits page, which is the last page all the way down. Oh, that's right. Simon Spurrier. I should have known how out there the story has been. Absolute three of three. Uh, Steve Wands does the letters. We get some information. We find out Victor Freeze, as is usually the case with Victor Freeze. Oh, it's Nora, 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 my beloved Nora. Of course, he's more selfish than that, um, which I guess gives more credence and um, makes the recent uh, Batman One Bad Day, Mr. Freeze title even better contextually uh, when you read this. And so come to find out, you know, supposedly he was looking to cure Nora's brain damage because, you know, he's, he's brought Nora back, but she doesn't love him. Doesn't want to have anything to do with him. And of course it doesn't have anything to do with him being a jerk. She must have brain damage from the cryogenesis. So he wants to heal that. Oh, that that's a noble goal. We'll come to find out he himself has brain damage from being exposed to the cold for so long. So is he really doing it to cure, cure he, her? Is he doing it to cure himself? Probably more the latter. You know, he's probably looking, caring more about himself, which you know, he's freeze. He's a bad guy. Um, there is some agency given to the woman that he captured. I, I won't pretend to really understand the whole con- context with this guy that shows up who seems to be some sort of ancient angel. And then the earworm character, a lot of this stuff feels shoehorned in for a backup and is very ambitious. I'll give a Sysbury or a lot of props for giving us a interesting story in terms of Victor freeze and being very true to the character, but the rest of it, it feels a little wonky. It feels like maybe a little bit too many ideas, not focused enough. Um, but the Casper Wingard art is pretty solid. I mean, it's a lot of pinks and purples and blues in watercolor as you know, it's Casper Wingard. That's what I come to expect. So no let down there. Um, and I, like I said, he did give some agency to this woman that was captured. You can see it there. If you're watching us on YouTube, when she kicks threes in the balls, um, the family jewels as it were. So, I, I mean, I thought it was okay. It's probably a situation where if I went back and read all three in one sitting, which would be about the equivalent of a one shot comic, I might get more out of it, but I don't know that I care enough about Victor Freeze or these new characters that were introduced to to really do that. So in a way, a little bit more of the same that we had in the main main story, right? <laughs> a little bit yeah. too much going on, a little bit unfocused. So I don't know if you have much to add, Rocky. I know you really, haven't really been enjoying the backup too much. 
Yeah, well, I, I haven't really either. I, I didn't even know who I, I didn't know who the redhead character was last issue or the issue before or the issue before that. Now it's we, we finally get a name for her that 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 I that I could find on the page that it was Doctor Mead. I didn't know it was a doctor. I didn't know. I don't recall her ever being caught. I don't. I don't know why. What the motive was was to catch her. I guess was to experiment on her brain and freeze her brain, and and then I don't know who this other character is. Apparently, he's been in some kind of machine. I don't what what machine was he in for over a century, and he was released. I don't know. Was that related to the thalamus machine with the organs? I or or not? Is this even related to the main story? I have no idea. It makes no sense. Also, this Doctor Mead. I, I think there, it's mentioned a few times that she's supposed to be forty years old. Forty years old, but I think she's been de-aged. So I think she, I think she, I think she actually got younger, but I think that was, that's hinted at here that even though she's 40 years old, cause she's saying, why do you, you know, cause the one guy kept saying to her, are you sure you're 40? You know, as if that's really old. I mean, uh, uh, but, uh, cause you know, apparently she looks much younger than that and she does. Uh, she certainly, uh, I can tell you she's unlikable. I hate, I hate the character. She, she, her dialogue, she's sounding like a whining suck. I mean, um, honestly, I'm surprised if this was any other villain, if Dog Mr. Freeze was actually written properly, I, I'd have killed her. I, I wanted to kill her. I don't know why he let her live, to be quite honest. Uh, just, I mean, just sitting there, uh, he, she, Mr. Freeze lets her go through her speech and let her, you know, like, as if, uh, you know, in the real world, you know, you, you know, go ahead and lip off a psychopath or somebody who's got a, who can kill you. She just goes on and on and on and on and on and gives, psychoanalyzes him and he's real cocky and then, of course, kicks him in the balls. Uh, and of course, nothing, you know, she manages to get away with it. I guess that's her way of showing some, some agency. But I, uh, I got, you know, I, I mean, I get it. It sounds, maybe it sounds like I'm complaining about that, but it's, uh, I just thought it was kind of like, I thought it was overdone, overdone. I mean, she, she basically humiliates him, gets her little alpha female, uh, jibes in against, against the bad guy. And then just when Mr. Freeze reveals that he actually is trying to make himself a better man, then suddenly she decides she's going to be the compassionate doctor. Uh, you know, I, um, uh, in any, it is what it is. I, um. Uh, I just, uh, I, I don't really know what the point of this, where this is going. Is this narrative supposed to line up with, with the main narrative of, of Ram V? Uh, it probably is. I personally hope it doesn't because it hasn't been making any sense. Uh, and I don't think, you know, I feel, I just feel so bad because this is going to probably be at least 12 issues in a trade to make sense of Ram V's story. How many issues of that? And then, we're going to have to, is this going to be collected in a trade as well? That this backup, because if it is, uh, I want to avoid that like the plague, uh, because I don't think it will read, uh, particularly well as, as a trade. So, uh, I, I props to Ram V, but Cy Spurrier, Simon Spurrier, I sincerely hope your, your sense of pacing and storytelling is, uh, is different on, uh, Flash, <laughs> your upcoming Flash. Yeah, that's what I'm worried about, what it bodes for that. I guess we'll see. All right, let's move on. Uh, action, action Comics, right? Action Comics from number 1054, uh, probably one of Rocky's favorite issues of the week because there's no Power Girl. There's no Power Girl with mental power. Yes. That's what, that's what I'm going for. Absolutely. Why I enjoy it so much. Uh, power Like This, main story, or, or the first story, I guess. I mean, they're all uh, relatively the same length. 
uh, written by Philip Kennedy Johnson. Art is by Max Rayner. Colors are by Matt Herms. Letters by Dave Sharp. Um, I've been going first on the, the good books and putting Rocky on the spot on the bad ones. So I'll let you go first uh, on this good one here. Uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed that. I, I enjoyed this. Uh, the last issue ended with uh, the, 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 I guess, the super twins, uh, Ortho and Oros. I always butcher their names because, again, really stupid names. We'll just call them the super twins because that's what the people of Metropolis call them. Uh, they ended up attacking, uh, you know, Ortho. One of them thought that, you know, the, she was helping out and uh, she was uh, there was a protest because there's there's been ongoing protests against the aliens coming to Earth or whatever and about the Phalosian refugees. And she thinks that she's breaking up the mob. And and uh, in any event, she it's believed at first that that she accidentally that Ortho accidentally uh, also ac- accidentally kills somebody, uh, but it ends up not being the case. It ends up being simply a, another one of Metallo's sort of Metallo minions, Metallo clones, or whatever Metallo minions. And and uh, thank God, well, much to the relief of John Kent, because John Kent felt really guilty because he felt that you know the Super Twins confronted him because they feel that John Kent. He's been feeling kind of maybe jealous about the the super twins are living the life with his dad that the years that he lost while being in a volcano with uh, Ultraman. And so John Kent is already feeling a little bit guilty that he made the super twins maybe feel unintentionally made them feel unwelcome in his own mind. And so uh, so he but he goes and he tries to help them. And uh, uh, there's the action sequences here are fantastic. Uh, I want to give uh, a shout out here to the. Uh, I'm trying to find the, <laughs> I'm trying to find the credits page. Oh, there it is at the beginning. Uh, artist on Max Rayner, fantastic colors by Matt Herms, uh, letters by Dave Sharp, really good. I mean, the, the sequence of events, the the, the choreography of the battles of, uh, it's just really, really good. The details, the background, the color work, everything just flows. This is really well done. I mean, just, I mean, watching every single page, it's just really good. Uh, one of my favorite uh, sequences involves uh, Superman telling his son, John, to, you know, look, you did good. Don't, you know, don't, don't pack your bags. Don't go on that guilt trip. Let me handle this. And he, and, uh, you know, he, he's going to go look for the super twins that are taken by, by Metallo. And he uses a super hearing. And there's a great double page spread as Superman, who we know has had enhanced powers coming back from War World. He knows the way he, he tracks their hearts, heartbeats and he, and he knows even Metallo's heartbeat. And he ultimately finds, he finds the super twins. He finds Metallo. And in true Superman fashion, he, uh, against impossible odds he defeats metallo and it's very interesting because metallo metallo's new powers were garnered by a, a genesis fragment which was encased around kryptonite the irony is that the genesis fragment powers up superman more than kryptonite takes his powers away so in fact whereas in the past metallo fighting Superman. Superman would normally have to worry about kryptonite. This time he really doesn't because it's it's more the, gen- the Genesis wave, the Genesis fragments, energy from the Genesis fragment that powers up Superman. And it just makes him just kick Metallo's ass even more than he normally would. And he shows his compassion to Metallo at the end that despite Metallo wanting to kill his own adopted children, the Super Twins, he's willing to help Metallo find his sister. And Metallo was shocked saying, well, I wouldn't do the same for you. And Superman saying, well, maybe one day you will. Uh, 
you know, that Superman, that Superman always choosing to see the best or even the best potential in even his greatest villains. And just, you know, Philip Kennedy Johnson is doing exactly what he has said in numerous interviews that he's do that he wants to do, and he does it here in spectacular fashion with fantastic art by Max Rayner. Very well done. And it ends, of course, with a tease that Cyborg Superman is going to actually change John Corbin's sister into another version of a female Metallo, which is quite terrifying. And he looks just Cyborg Superman looks more terrifying than ever in that in that in the final page of the story. And it's just, it's just you know, I, I thought it was really, really well done. And uh, kudos to Philip Kennedy Johnson for a well scripted choreographed uh, story and uh, kudos to Max Rayner. What do you think? Yeah. Isn't this fun? Isn't this fun, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, if you are a fan of Superman Triangle era, we talked about this when PKJ was on. We talked about, you know, the sort of the way that things were back then with the ensemble cast and you know, just all the different members of the um, um, the the Daily Planet and all, you know, everything that was going on. And that's what we have here, and added to even more so by the fact that we get um, – these other stories, right. That are giving us different eras and are, are, you know, talking about different, uh, you know, like, like we'll talk about the, uh, uh, John Henry irons, you know, again, he was another one of the, the four Superman for Superman, if you will, that replaced Clark when, you know, supposedly he died in, in death of Superman. So that's so, that's so interesting to, to think about it in those terms. Um, the other thing that PKJ talked about when he was on was wanting to level Metallo up, right. Make him, you know, a big bad for lack of a better term. But also we talked a lot about Superman being powered up and, and getting them back to almost to a level of pre-crisis level. Right. So here you have a Metallo that is much more powerful than he's ever been. We find out the big bad who's behind it is uh, cyborg Superman, which is so interesting because I, I think he's actually an underrated uh, villain when it comes to uh, Superman rogues gallery, if you will. So here's a Metallo that is more powerful than ever. And yet Superman defeats him, you could say, relatively easily. And, you, you know, you could complain about that. Oh, well, you know, Metallo is supposed to be all, you know, uh, uh, sort of powered up and, and, a, and a real threat for Superman and that sort of thing. And he, and he was, but in a different way, right? He kidnaps the Super Twins, as, as Rocky said. So the, the threat is a, a little bit different. You're threatening somebody who Superman cares about rather than Superman himself because Superman is so powerful, has become so powerful. And, in, you know, Rocky mentioned it. The, this orphan box that's powering Metallo and the Genesis fragments that give Superman power. And it, it's so fantastic, right? So that was still a threat. He still has the kryptonite heart. Uh, and that's not, hasn't been retconned or changed, but yet the Genesis and Superman himself says it, says it to Metallo, which in turn, you know, uh, educates readers who may not be aware of this. Like, man, this Genesis stuff gives me so much power. The kryptonite doesn't even affect me. And that page right there, if you're watching this on YouTube, on YouTube. Go back, Rocky. That page right there, amazing. Absolutely amazing by Max Rayner. I mean, look at that. If you're not watching us and you're audio only and you haven't had a chance to read Action <laughs> Comics, Superman, and he sort of, had, if anybody's familiar with the X-Men character Armor, how she sort of generates that, you know, bigger pink body around her. This is the Superman version of that. There's this big energy, blue energy version of Superman, that, and he's kind of in the middle of it. And it just looks so amazing right it does. And it, this it's is amazing not, yeah it's not a new power right it's just the genesis 
fragments powering up Superman to a level where he can like make this energy construct of himself. It's so cool. And it's what allows him to defeat Patello, as I said. Relatively well, it does easy. seem like a new power, though. I mean, is it, it does kind of seem like a new power. He's never been able to, con- you know, but it's cool. Uh, but it- Yeah, I mean, to, to a certain extent. So I'm, I'm sure, and again, if you go back and listen to my conversation with Philip Kennedy Johnson, remember he talks about how Superman always had the, that, um, that sort of little field that he generated around himself that protects his costume. And to yeah. me, this is that expanded, right? So it's that. Is, is that expanded. what that is? Did Philip Kennedy Johnson say that, or is that you speculating? I'm that's just me curious. Spe- that, that's me speculating. I like that, that theory. I like your theory. Yeah, that's kind of cool. But I could. But you could be right. It could be a, yeah. a new power. We would have to, you know, talk to PKJ. But three, you know, I get that because when I mentioned the fight with Luthor, when we really saw Superman, you know, fully powered up for the first time. And I mentioned something about new power. He's like, well, it's not a new power. It's, it's more about expanding the powers that he has and using them in, in different ways. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm applying that theory to this, but I could be wrong. It could be a new power. Either way, it's freaking awesome. And Max Rainer did a fantastic job. And as powerful as Superman is, he's more compassionate than ever. Rocky alluded to it. Hey, I'm still going to help you. Let's go save your sister. And Cyborg Superman looking uh, badass and menacing as well. Looks like he's been powered up. So I, you just love it, right? You love this, you know, more powerful Superman. And in order for him to still be threatened, PKJ is, uh, you know, turning up the volume on all these old classic villains um, from the Triangle era. So, uh, so I love it. Um, and and speaking of Triangle era, you know, maybe the most famous creator of that era, Dan Jurgens, who's been writing the uh, the second story, the story about uh, John Kent and this uh, alien princess who who crash landed on Earth. And all along, and again, I credit Dan Jurgens for this, somehow subtly, he conveyed, at least to me in the story, that this princess was the was the antagonist. She was the bad guy. <laughs> she was fooling John. She was preying on his inexperience. Um, and that's what we have here at the end of the story. This Gliana is actually the one who, again, we don't know the whole story. Was she trying to, to overthrow her father? What exactly is going on? John's been protecting her from these forces that have been coming to capture her and take her back to her planet. She uh, says to be executed, whether that's true or not, who knows, but she shows her true colors at the end. She's there to capture Superman and, uh, and control him and have her be his champion, so to speak. So uh, again, it's playing out as I expected, um, but it's no less interesting and fun for that. Also in this particular issue, Dan Jurgens does the art as well. So it, again, really has sort of a classic Superman feel. Um, Lee, you know, Lee Weeks has been doing the art. Not that I don't enjoy uh, Lee Weeks art, but it, it was interesting to see this uh, with Jurgens art because it felt a little more super heroic and a little less um, sort of crime noir, if you will. But more than anything, I just enjoyed it because I got to say, yeah, I was right. I knew she was the bad guy, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, I'm really, I'm really enjoying it. And yeah, Dan Jurgens, he still got it in my mind. Yeah, he does. So. I love, uh, in, in a Dan Jurgens story here with, uh, I love how just that, that when you, it's amazing what, how you can change the look of a character because Gliana looks like this gorgeous princess. And she sort of almost like doe-eyed, white-haired, gorgeous, beautiful. But with a slight change of the eyebrows, 
boy, does she look menacing. <laughs> and, and it's just, it's just fantastic art. And, and it just seems to work. And because she looks so innocent and helpful and, you know, asking John all the right questions and John's helping her and, and they're being attacked by this creature called the Kilomek. It's a Kilomek mon- machine monster. And of course, it, it, it's, it's Dan Jurgen's attempt at, at, I think, fairly successful misdirection. I, I kind of suspected maybe, like you, that Gliana might end up being the bad person at the hint, because at the beginning when she's talking about, she basically, she described a planet where she's, it was a monarchy and she's a, kind of like her family. It sounded like a dictatorship and she needed to go back and help her people while the people were against her. Well, so there was hints there that something was awry. And But anyways, it, it just works so well. And I think she's in for a big surprise when she faces Superman. When Superman is I, – I, 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 I think she's going to discover that, um, you know, Superman is considerably more of a powerhouse than just her uh, the budding powers of a young John Kent. But wow, I, I love this. I would uh, – this is something where I would I would love to collect that even maybe even a nice little hardcover form. This story, I mean, uh, trade paperback. I mean, I, I'm loving it. I, I'm loving it. So, uh, um, yeah. Okay. I hope people. I hope people are picking up because right, we have so many people. Oh, the, where's the young John Kent? Where's the young? Well, here he is. Here he is, and this is a great story um, yep. that Dan Jurgens is telling about. Like I said, the the idea that he is experienced, inexperienced. He is young. You know, he, he's taking Gliana at her word. Um, you know, fighting alongside her without questioning. So uh, a lesson to be learned for sure. Uh, all right. Well, the final story is a John Henry Iron story. Uh, as I mentioned, it's written by somebody I'm, I'm not familiar with the name. Um, so I'm not sure if he's written things before, but it's Dorado Quick. The art is by Yasmin Flores Montanez, colors by Brad Anderson, letters by Dave Sharp. Uh, and, and this is one where, like I said, uh, a real feel of the classic triangle era with John Henry Irons. And it, it gives a little bit of a, um, I guess a recap of who he is or sort of an explanation of who he is. And we, we have some hints of somebody who um, seems to have it in for him, but I, I, I don't know who it is. I don't know if it's somebody that I should know who it is. I never read the steel series that came after um, uh, John Henry Irons appearances in one of the Superman books. I think it was probably Superman man of steel when he took it over for those few months. So I'm not sure if I'm supposed to know who this is uh, for a second there. I thought, is it Mr. Terrific? Cause there's like a little ball floating around, you know, like the T spheres, but uh, I don't think it's Mr. Terrific. I don't know why it would be. So I'm not sure exactly what's going on. Um, but I am interested and I do appreciate that at least we're getting some other characters um, other than just power girl to really kind of, play on the idea of action comics being the Superman family book as it were. So uh, what were your thoughts on this? Yeah, I I thought it was good. It's sort of like, I mean, at the end, it reminded me a little bit of like, you know, uh, Tony Stark revealing his identity to the world. John Henry Irons doing the same thing. And he's sort of like his own version of Iron Man, but he's, he's unique. I thought everybody already knew at one point. I don't know. It's hard to keep track with secret identities in the DC universe, yeah. to be honest. I, you, you make a good point. I, I don't I don't avidly follow John Henry Irons, to be honest with you. I've never found him to be an appealing character. I'm actually far more interested in his daughter, Natasha Irons. I just find her to be more interesting, uh, frankly. But having said this, I, I said that I'm more than prepared to – I mean there's so much potential with John Henry Irons that frankly he could be his own character. I think there's so much potential for this character and you know it's it's interesting. I mean uh, what what is his daughter called? Isn't she known 
does she have a code name, Natasha Irons? I mean, I thought I think she as well. Like, I, yeah. So I thought, yeah, <laughs> I suppose he he retired from wearing the armor, but no mention of that here. Yeah, like you said, I I would have thought people already knew he was John Henry Irons because they knew his daughter was Natasha Irons. I thought, but maybe I'm wrong on that. I. So in any event, it, it it seems to me that it's it's the way that since they had to reveal Superman's identity, you know, they, they had to put that – they had to give him back his secret identity. Well, at least one member of the Superman family is going to reveal their identity and let that be John Henry Irons. So. Yeah, I thought she was his niece actually. Right. Sorry. You're right. She is. But, but My wait, bad. either way, I, it was, I thought it was public knowledge. But anyway – Interesting enough, again, you know, much like Rocky, I'm not the biggest uh, Steel fan, so I guess we'll see how it how it plays out. Uh, but I, I do like more than anything. What I appreciate is that that classic feel, Triangle Era feel that this uh, this series has. So, uh, all right, up next we have Harley Quinn. This is the second issue of the uh, Tinny Howard era, I guess you'd say. The art is by Sweeney Boo, and you know she she's really bringing her A game. This is so interesting. And it's such a um, – well, I, she handles the colors as well. And then Steve Wands on letters, I should say. Um, like I, I just – I really didn't expect Tinny Howard's run to be so – to feel so big, right? Like it's a multiverse story. We have Lady Quark and her family. You know, we uh, we alluded to it last issue when she showed up, this Girls in, in Crisis Part 2. And it's Harley really sort of expanding her horizons. Like Harley, you could make the argument, has been – very much a street level character for so much of her existence. And here she's so much more than that. So that is something that I find really interesting in a, in a lot of ways. So, um, you know, with Harley, you know, uh, uh, enlisting the aid of Zatanna to try to figure out what's going on with the multiverse and who Lady Quark is and uh, how that all plays out with her hyena, uh, sidekicks and all that again I, I just find it to be a lot of fun um and it is somewhat of a return to the zany harley that we've seen in the past as well uh which is interesting uh on that level uh, also and and i love how the backup you know so many of these backups just don't necessarily really tie in very well with the main stories we've talked about it a lot this one in a way especially when you start talking about multiverse and different versions of the hyenas really do uh, really does this backup really does tie in really well and and then the other thing that uh, that Tinny does where she's sort of juggling so many things is this idea of you know Two Face as as the villain um, who seems to have a grudge for Harley that I sort of haven't seen before and I don't know that I really understand where it comes from in terms of is there history there or not I mean maybe it's just because I'm not. Uh, the biggest Harley fan that I'm not aware of what's going on there. But again, I, I, this is fun and it's quite a departure from the most recent Harley that we've had. So um, it's, it's interesting on, on a lot of those levels as well. So uh, what were your thoughts on this? Well, uh, I actually, I'm, I'm already much more interested in this story than I have been in Harley in the last two years, quite frankly, uh, because now I'm, I'm not saying I'm, I'm still not, I'm still not a big fan of of this iteration of Harley in general, but that's not Teeny Howard's fault. As a story, this is actually not not bad. I'm a little bit intrigued. Uh, we got the multiversal theme, which I think has been overdone. But 
we got we we're back to Earth forty eight where there's a uh, uh, lady Lady Quark is back with Lord Volt and their children. It's the city palace of the royal family of Lady Quark, and Lady Quark warned Harley last last issue, saying, "Hey, you know uh, this you you, you somehow." Screwed up the screwed up the multiverse. Uh, you, you acquired this fish that belonged to Captain Carrot of the Amazing Zoo Crew from another Earth, and she warned Harley that if you're gonna if your shenanigans end up disrupting and having things appear from other parts of the multiverse on on your Earth, and it's your fault, we're gonna take you out, and uh, you're gonna cause disruptions. and And so what what uh, what what Harley Quinn does here is kind of funny. She goes on the internet to try to find well, you know, to, uh, you know. Basically, she Googled how to solve multiversal problems and what pops up is Zatanna. And Zatanna actually has a website. So she goes there and Zatanna, Zatanna is clearly, uh, Zatanna is in the middle of an intimate session with, uh, John Constantine. And you don't find that out till the end, but she has an hour to spare for Harley. And she tells Harley, she creates a spell and she gives it to Harley saying, okay, now this, this spell requires a sacrifice. And Harley doesn't even know really what that means, a sacrifice. Well, what does that mean? That's all really Zatanna says. And there's a lot of dialogue. I think it's overwrought with dialogue, to be honest with you. I think it's unnecessary. I don't think necessarily a lot happens in this issue. But Sweeney Boo's art is so fantastic. It really is re- – it's really good here. I think Sweeney Boo is a nice – Sweeney Boo works well with Teeny Howard's scripts here. And the dialogue does feel natural. I think it, it, it works for the character. And ultimately, Harley Quinn is trying to figure out, well, look, I don't want to accidentally screw up the multiverse. I don't want to accidentally destroy my, destroy our earth. So, I mean, she gets advice. Where do you go to for advice? Well, she goes and she talks to Batman. And, uh, and Batman, you know, she talks to Batman about sacrifice and Batman tells her, uh, well, you know, it's not about you. And Batman warns her, well, you're not, you weren't about to kill Two-Face, were you? Because at one point, Harley Quinn was thinking, well, to sacri- she was thinking like a sacrifice, like you have to kill a human being, a sacrifice of life. She, she contemplated killing Two-Face, but she realized she couldn't do that. Even though, frankly, I like uh, my version of Harley Quinn would very much contemplate killing Two-Face, but that's besides the point. Uh, she decides she's not going to do that. And there's, a, it's kind of a funny aside where Batman says, you weren't thinking of sacrificing Two-Face. Two-Face, were you? Uh, no, no, she says. So there were some funny moments, I thought. And I like the fact that Harley Quinn realizes that uh, you got to give – when you sacrifice something, you're giving up something that means something to you. That's what she gets out of her conversation with Batman. And because Batman has been there before and she actually I, you know, takes her baseball bat and she destroys a plant that Ivy gave her. And that I thought that was – I thought that was actually – Something that Harley would do, and it made sense. And it, this plant means a lot to her. And she she was sad that she had to destroy it, but she's so afraid of screwing up the multiverse. She's going to destroy and sacrifice this gift that she loves that makes her think of her of her uh, of her partner, uh, uh, Poison Ivy. And I thought that was very really well done. And when, upon destroying it, uh, for some reason that triggers her her two her two uh, dogs or her two uh, hyenas, uh, Bud and Lou. Suddenly they can talk to her and that's how the issue ends. But I'm actually kind of strangely intrigued by this. I can't believe I'm saying it because I'm, I'm generally not a fan of this iteration of Harley. But this is this was refreshing. I actually kind of enjoyed this. And I got to say something about the backup, Hyena Anxiety. Perfect segue into this by Adam Warren, starring art by Adam Warren. 
absolutely love Adam Warren's art. Uh, I love Sweeney Boo's art, but I'm so glad we got Adam uh, Warren. I love his art. I love how he draws sort of a little chunkier Harley. I just love his particular style with the bigger eyes and everything else and, and the talking hyenas. And it's just, I actually found myself, I thought it was very well done. I thought it was funny. I even laughed in parts. I thought it was just, it was just a, it was beautifully illustrated, very entertaining. And just the issue as a whole, I just, I, I, I found myself ending this with, with a smile on my face and really liking the art, pleasantly surprised by the story. And I'm actually intrigued to see where this is going to go. Yeah, I, I agree. Again, it's something unexpected because I don't typically go in for the zany Harley either, but the, adding in this idea of her um, being such a big part of the multiverse, it's, it's just interesting. It's just fun. So uh, curious to see how it all plays out uh, in the end. And then, like I said, the uh, the personification, the uh, you know, anthropomorphized Bud and Lou at the end, you know, talking, <laughs> you know, talking right in front of Harley as though she's not there, right? Uh, you almost expect Harley to to say, you know, I'm right here. You guys are talking about me, and I'm, you know, I'm right here. Um, like, yeah, the voices you heard are our voices and that sort of thing. And then to follow it up with this backup, as you said, uh, by Adam Warren where they're talking to her as well. And she sort of thinks that it's her, you know, her imagination and, you know, they weren't really talking to her and that sort of thing. And she, you know, walks away at the end and then they're like, yeah, I guess we shouldn't tell her that we really can, uh, you know, articulate ourselves. What do they, they say? Uh, we're in fact, fully articulate, multiversal anthropomorphic hyena forms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's a mouthful. <laughs> tell her that. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun, and I agree with you. I love the, kind of the almost more realistic body type of Adam Warren's version of of Harley. So, uh, all right, on to the last book we're going to talk about in detail: uh, Sandman Universe Dead Boy Detectives Number Five. Um, I, I felt like this this issue was sort of tough. Um, because it's, it's a very much a talking heads issue. And so it's, it's a, sometimes it feels a little slow. feels like it's dragging, but it's so much, the story has become so much about the relationship between these ghosts rather than kind of who's behind. Right. Um, Cause they're all young kids and it's that whole idea of coming of age and whatever, but then there's a juxtaposition that they're dead. Some of them have been dead for hundreds and hundreds of years. So how can it really be a coming of age story? But that, the balance of that by Pornsack Pichichote, who's the writer, has been uh, has been interesting. Um, so for this particular issue, to have that context, I think, works really, really well. And then you get to the end, and you're sort of thrown for a loop, and it sort of starts to make a lot of sense of why this story has morphed from, uh, okay, you know, who's behind the, the killing of some of these kids that we saw in the beginning to, well, what is, what is one willing to give up in order to, to have happiness, you know, as much as a ghost can, can be happy. Um, and, and, you know, the, the two main characters, the dead boy detectives, um, Edwin and Charles find out that if they're willing to have the other ghosts that they've met, the tide ghost sort of destroyed, if you will, I can't remember the exact term they use. Um, if they allow them to be, you know, destroyed for lack of a better term, that they then can have sort of a return to 
normalcy, not, you know, not a return to life, but a, a return to the status quo that they had it before the story started. So um, it, it's an interesting take. Um, in a way, it, it almost doesn't feel like it belongs in the Sandman universe, though, but maybe that's just my own personal because it feels a little bit just different in tone, right? Like there, it, there's not that creepy vibe that you typically associate, at least for me with the Sandman universe titles that we've gotten most recently, but the Jeff Stokely art is fantastic. Inks are by Craig uh, Telefer and Jeff Stokely. Miguel, Miguel Muerto does colors. Hassan Atzman Elhau on letters. Porn Sack Pichu Show writing, as I said. Um, but yeah, it was just, it was an interesting issue because it was so much talking head. It was so much relationship. It was so much, this idea that they're all in it together. And then at the end with this idea that, okay, can they, can Edwin and Charles actually get out of this situation they find themselves in? Well, yeah, you, you, you guys can. Um, I just need to negate all the ghosts. That's the word they use, not destroy, but negate. Um, and they're like, wait, as in they'll all go away. Like all of them, the good, you know, the, the evil spirits that they've been battling all along that are maybe the one we don't know who's controlling them, but they're the ones behind the deaths. Um, but then, the, you know, the ghosts that we care about that have become friends that we've established these relationships with, um, they go away too. So, yeah. you know, talk about sacrifice and how do, how do, how, how does Edwin and Charles like, what gives them the right to decide? Why do they get to negate these other ghosts? Why don't those ghosts, you know, why can't one of the other ghosts choose to, to negate Charles and Edwin? along with the evil spirits. Like it's a, there's an interesting dynamic there. Interesting question. So yeah. Uh, what, what are your thoughts I, on it? I, I thought uh, what, what really struck me, I, I was really uh, touched by the, by the, the sacrifice that, that Charles made that was alluded to. Well, that was stated right at the beginning where he, he actually confronts, although she doesn't see him, he confronts his old girlfriend, Crystal, who is now an adult. And, the, she she she's psychic and he could appear to her, but he chooses not to. And uh, she had psychic abilities, but while he could appear to her, uh, she she saw him when he was younger, when she was younger because she was a child. So children can see the dead boys, but adults can't. And and so there's a sense of tragedy that as as Crystal, the the woman that he did love, grew older, as she became an adult, she she could not no longer see him anymore. Like literally, she could not see Charles, <laughs> and of course, she went on to love somebody else. And there's, you know, there, the language that uh, Pikachu, you know, uses here is that the language that, in a sense, when you move on to a different love, the love that you have, there is sort of a death to that. You know, the idea that we, we all experience little deaths as we move on to different relationships. Other relationships die, in a sense, and. And the sacrifice that Charles makes, and he's forever doomed to. Both Edwin and Charles have that. It's it's a curse. They they might be able. They can fall in love, but that which they fall in love with will grow old, and it's adulthood that will will you know for, they're forever limited. Even though they're technically dead and immortal in a sense, their love is not because if they fall, the person they fall in love with will eventually. Uh, have have will grow older and they they lose that and now potentially here Charles and Edwin both kind of love the same girl uh, she's also a ghost so there's maybe there's hope there but at the end the tragedy of it is as they come upon Thessaly who who is this Thessaly this witch she's the one who reveals that look you know the the summoner here this idiot summoner 
teen, you know, adult summoner has, has tried to raise the dead and he screwed things up. You know, we can, I can stop him and restore things to normal. Just let me do my job. And, uh, unfortunately that will mean that they're going to lose all their friends that they just, uh, that they just acquired and they're going to lose again. So just as they lose, they've lost their loves in the past because of their circumstances. Now, even when they've acquired friends, they're going to lose their friends that they've grown to care for too. And there's a tragedy to that. And so I was very hard on the previous two issues because I, I didn't know where this is going exactly. Now that I know where it's going, I'm invested in this ending. I want to know how this is going to end. And I want to know what the dead boys are going to do because I hope they can save their friends and create a new mythology for the dead boys moving forward. Yeah, again, a little bit of a different tone from, as I said, from the past um you know, Sandman universe stories. Cause it's so, it's so much about relationships, but it's still really, really good. So, uh, all right. Well, that does it for the issues we're going to talk about in detail. There is one other, well, there's the, uh, B- Blue Beetle graduation day does have the Spanish version, uh, as it has throughout its run. And there's also the DC Ruby or DC RWBY, which I guess is sort of a, a manga take on some DC characters. And as far as collected editions, we've got booster gold volume one 52 pickup trade paperback, which collects the first six issues of the Dan Durgan's Booster Gold series from back in the 90s, or sorry, uh, in the 2000s. And then Batman, Batman and Son, New Edition trade paperback, Grant Morrison, this is, uh, and Adam Kubert on art. This is the story when Damien comes around for the first time. Speaking of Damien, also Batman and Robin, Volume 1, Batman Reborn, which uh, comes out after uh, Final Crisis, also by Grant Morrison. That's the Frank Quitely art uh very well known very popular uh there's a creature commandos trade paperback collecting stories from weird war weird war tales Uh, that is classic stuff as well wonder woman paradise found trade paperback uh collects wonder woman issues 171 through 177 then finally legends of the dc universe carmine infantino hardcover uh which collects i believe uh, just some random Carmen Infantino issue. So he was well known for his work on the flash more than anything, probably, but he did plenty of other uh, fantastic work throughout his uh, run at DC. So um, yeah, I'm thinking about picking that one up myself. So uh, that's it for collections. So Um, why don't you go first this week for pick of the week? What's your pick of the week? Pick pick of the week is tough. um, Cause I think, as much as I complained about Green Arrow, the art in it was fantastic. Um, and so I gave some consideration to that. I thought Blue Beetle Graduation Day ended on a really, really high note. But ultimately, if only for that one page, uh, I mean, for more reasons than just the one page, but Action Comics with that one page was so fantastic, was so much fun. I'm going with Action Comics 1054. Also because I was right about uh, Gliana being a bad person. And just the feel, the, the triangle era feel. Um, so I'm going with that, but it was close. I I, I really uh, enjoyed the end of Blue Beetle uh, yeah. as well. So, uh, well, yeah, I'm going, uh, with, I'm going with Action Comics. Uh, great pick. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, – I really loved the Roy Harper-Leon uh, reunion, uh, but uh, that was just one scene. In that comic, and but as a comic as a whole, in terms of surprising me with a fantastic ending, nailing the landing, enjoyable read. I got to go with Blue Beetle Graduation Day, 
it it followed through on its promise. It did a great job. I'm I'm so impressed, and I'm uh, you know it even got me excited for the movie. So uh, good job to uh, Trujillo. Uh, he did a good job on the scripts on that. Yeah, I agree, and and I mean again, just it was unexpected. It really was. It was something you know better than the sum of its parts. So yeah. Uh, anyway, thanks for joining us, everybody. Really appreciate you guys sticking around for the whole thing. Uh, don't forget if you're listening to us audio only, head over to YouTube, subscribe to Rocky's channel. It's Comic Boom, Comic Space Boom! Exclamation point. Once you get there, you know what to do. The notification bell. Leave some comments. Subscribe. Make sure you don't miss any of the content. We really, really appreciate it. Conversely, if you check us out on YouTube all the time and you're curious about some of the other audio-only content on the comic source, just go to wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. Uh, do a search. Comic source will show up. Hit that subscribe button and you'll be all set. So uh, once again, we appreciate everybody joining us as always, and we will talk to you next time. Catch you later. You can find the Comic Source podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.